Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I am Trevor Dame, and as always, I am joined by that pundit of pizza himself, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, if for those who weren't haven't been following you on Twitter at MayorMGF, how many slices is appropriate to eat of pizza? Um, no slices. Pizza is so bad for you. Oh, come on. Well, if you just got a marinara pie, which was literally like just garlic, sauce, crust, no cheese. Gotta get – you can't eat all that bread, Trevor. Well, well, that goes to the slice thing. What if I had one small slice? All right. I'll allow it. Oh, thank God. Um, I know what I'm doing after the show. Yes, and I do want to say um, I'm going to be doing my best on this episode to avoid you having to listen to the weird sounds of my mouth and nose. Um, I – the best I can say, if it doesn't work in this episode, gonna have to think of a whole new plan. A whole new plan, Trevor. <laughs> Is your plan this time to not breathe or something? No. Um, but it uh, involves muting my microphone on a regular basis, and uh, if that doesn't work, I'm going to just have to buy a new one. And unfortunately, I can make no guarantees about the awful sounds coming out of my mouth. They're generally called words, and they're not very good, and they will be happening, Boo. unfortunately. Boo. Boo to your self-deprecation. Yay to your words. Something that won't you, you won't be booing are, is all the fine podcasts on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which has continued just on in the summer. There is no off-season on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, so... Plenty of good shows, and one of those shows is us, and I think we should just say, first of all, thank you to everybody who listened to our big, super long, six-hour extravaganza on the last episode. It's the best numbers we've done in a long time. It'll probably be one of our most listened-to shows ever. Uh, we got a lot of nice comments about it, and I just want to thank everybody for that, anyone that started to listen to us because of that, you know. Thank you. You won't be hearing another six-hour expose about a serious story ever again, I don't think. But hopefully you liked the second half of that episode because that's basically what we do every episode here. So, Yeah, there, I'd say there, of, the, of the episodes we've done, that's got to be in like the top 36 or 37 episodes. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. You were amazing. I was um, making weird noises with my mouth. And uh, – all in all, I think it adds up to a pretty good package. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, we now are actually on the other side of that. We've been dreading it for two and a half years. We have passed that moment, and now what are we going to do? Yeah, it's like we have to build some new horrifying thing in our heads that just so we always have that slight tinge of dread hanging over us. That is, that's really been the key to what makes this show good. Yeah, I mean, I think the horrifying thing is just going to be us and our, uh, and our <laughs> things that we say to each other. Um, but no, it's, uh, it's, uh, we're about to enter what uh, one uh, listener, uh, the, the famed uh, political uh, empresario of New York City, Aaron Taub, said was the, uh, the real ROH supposedly yeah. begins on the event that we're going to cover today. I mean – I think that we, as we've proven re-watching these shows and doing the podcast, there's a lot of great and important stuff in the first couple of years. But definitely, this was the show. I, I think I've said this before on the show, but this this show we're going to cover today, Ring of Ring of Honor Reborn Stage One, is the show where I started becoming a buy every single DVD as it comes out sequ- sequentially Ring of Honor fan. Yeah, it's so, it's interesting it, to look back and see uh, in what ways they were and were not reborn. Yeah, so take that in mind as I review the show because I don't know 
I always really don't know, even though I have extensive notes, how like my review is going to come out till I talk, just do it live talking to you in a conversation. But there definitely could be like the soft glow of nostalgia for on this show for me, because it is kind of the, the show that really pulled me into just watching every show, looking forward to like the second it came out, placing my order, stuff like that. So yeah, it, it is kind of a weird trip to like be back where I can remember what it felt like to watch the show the first time. Yeah, it's like being reborn again. <laughs> oh, it's like being Evan born with way less use of ayahuasca. Speaking of reborn, the debut of Evan Bourne on this show. Yeah, that's that's a wild. Uh, there's there's a lot of weird little uh, weird little things. Like it's weird to think. Well, we can get to it, but like he is not even the most important person debuting in his match tonight in terms of Ring of Honor history. So yeah, first I, <laughs> that's that's a we'll, good point. We'll have to go to. Uh, there's some news that happened between the last show and this one. Some different interesting tidbits. Uh, the first thing this comes from the Observer. Dave Meltzer wrote, the loss of the TNA names amounts to about a $2,000 off payroll and travel each night for Ring of Honor. It probably amounts to no real savings because it's very conceivable it will cost the company 100 tickets on the walk-up per night. Based on the advances, the St. Paul show looks to do about 500 paid and the Chicago show looks to do in the 900 range. So first note there is this is, I guess we should mention – Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 1 and Stage 2 was the second ever double shot Ring of Honor ever did. And it, this double shot was the first time they ever went to uh, St. Paul, and I believe the last time, at least for a long time, and uh, the first time they ever went to Chicago. And both those estimates came in, the reported attendance for both those shows ended up being like 100 lower. So I, I did think it was kind of interesting – you know, he's saying that um, Dave is saying he must have got this, I assume, from someone in Ring of Honor that they were saving, you know, between not having to book guys like AJ and Daniels and Red, that they're saving $2,000 per show, but that he thinks it'll cost the company about 100 tickets a night. I guess it's kind of hard to judge that, but do you, th- it's hard to, for me to put into math like, are, were 100 people buying tickets in these shows just to see Christopher Daniels and AJ Styles? I mean, I know AJ was with the TNX. TNA exposure, probably one of the biggest names they had, but um, I was I, I know I'm I was thinking, thinking for me about personally, that. I w- I wouldn't be going like um it, as a fan myself, I wouldn't be going. I'm not gonna, I'm going to stop watching because AJ Styles can't come to the shows. Yeah, yeah, people like us, it wouldn't affect. But I think in probably some, especially new markets, I think it might uh, have that. You know, when you first said it, I was like, give me a break. But as I thought of it over like the last minute or so, um, I was like, you know. For a new market, the guys that are in TNA, which you know still wasn't on TV yet, I think it was about to be, right? But it yeah. didn't. But it did have a higher profile than ROH, so you know it was on pay TV. So I, I could see, I could see the loss of stars in TNA. Maybe not Daniels, but AJ. I could see that in certain places affecting a decent amount of ticket sales. I mean, a lot of independent shows, and for probably a lot decent amount of fans, this was just like an independent show coming to town. A a big name is a lot of the time what people come to see, right? So yeah. in, you know, I think for the vast majority of people who would go, no, it, had made, it would make no difference. But for a few people at the margins, maybe. A hundred? I don't know. That's hard to yeah. say. But I think Dave, I don't know. I feel like Dave probably would have a good idea of that at the time and what, what effect that would have. 
something else that happened during this time period, uh, April 3rd of, the, of 2004 to be exact, was uh, ECWA held their annual Super 8 tournament, one of the original influential U.S. indie kind of super tournaments that happens every year. And Christopher Daniels became the first person to ever win it twice. And he beat, to get to the finals, he beat Rocky Romero. Mike Cruel, and in the finals, he beat Austin Aries to win. And in The Observer, Dave wrote, Aries looks to be one of the new indie stars of the year as he got rave reviews here, and Gabe Sapolsky of Ring of Honor is going to start pushing him as well. So, yeah, this would turn out to be that, – that, that's definitely a line that is absolutely true. I mean, the year ends with Austin Aries being the guy to dethrone Samoa Joe. Like, this is a pretty – Probably one of the most important years of his career, even though obviously he'd get way more exposure as his career continued. But in terms of that year, th- I mean, this is his breakout year. Yeah, and he hasn't even debuted on a main ROH show yet. Won't debut until the next show that we watch. And in fact, The Observer had more notes. They basically, I like this is one of those things where Dave basically just tells you what's going to happen because he writes ring of honor is going to start pushing austin aries and roderick strong as newcomers as well as hydro from special k and alex shelley up the ladder the pl- and then he also writes the plan right now is to use ricky steamboat more frequently after the reaction he got at the elizabeth new jersey show on march 13th there is some thought that the F- rick flair dvd which was so popular with the same group of people who attend roh shows has revitalized steamboat's name because the best matches on the on that tape in Involved him. I never really thought of that angle, but I do remember that the the Flair triple DVD set that WWE put out was like a pretty big deal back then. Like it's weird to think now where everything is just instantly available online, but back then DVD sets of, of old matches were still kind of a big deal. Yeah, I'm. I still have a hard time thinking of it like Ricky Steamboat was rehabilitated by the DVD, though. Yeah. I feel like if he if he had if this had happened two years earlier, he would have still gotten an insanely big reaction. Like it's kind of funny to think, oh, um, well, well, we were really impressed with that reaction Ricky Steamboat got. Maybe we should use him more. I feel like I mean I would if someone had told me that Ricky Steamboat was going to be on a show and be part of an angle and stuff, I would have expected him to get a really big reaction from that kind of audience. Yeah. Um, another thing, as we just run down the news. Uh, this is, as we talk about this show, I guess it's important to note that, uh, this was the lineup we're going to be describing tonight of what happened isn't the original plan because obviously there was a card set before TNA pulled their talent. So these are some of the key matches that were previously announced for tonight's show. It was going to be AJ Styles versus Jerry Lynn for the pure wrestling title. So obviously that match, both guys pulled. Samoa Joe was still going to wrestle Homicide for the Ring of Honor title. That did happen. Christopher Daniels and BJ Whitmer were going to wrestle CM Punk and Colt Cabana. Obviously that didn't happen. And Brian Danielson was going to wrestle John Walters, and then finally Raven, after not doing a lot of shows because he's a very big ticket, he was one of the highest paid guys on the US Indies at this point. I think he was making I forget it was $1,500 or $2,000 a shot was the price the Observer listed a while or a while earlier. He was going to be booked to wrestle just incredible, and I guess Ring of Honor said they were doing that because the one time ECW had rang, run St. Paul, they had a big brawl there, those two in a match. So the idea was we're going to revisit that. So that was the original card. I think the card we got is actually a better card. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, they didn't mention what the Briscoes would have done, so maybe they would have wrestled the Pitbulls anyway. But yeah. I, um, yeah, I mean, did we ever end up getting that dream Danielson versus John Walters match down the line? <laughs> I, I don't remember, but 
I mean, to spoil what's going to come later, instead of Danielson, John Walters, and Punk and Cabana versus Whitmer and Daniels, we get Cabana versus Whitmer, and we get Punk versus Danielson, which I think is a preferable top two. I mean, two matches. I agree. I. It's we. I mean, we'll see as we get by, but it's weird how little ROH ended up missing Daniels. Uh, and and Styles, but Daniels in particular, since he was such an integral part of the show for so long, it's I guess in some ways you might say he just kind of ran his course, and that time away was good for him and for ROH. Yeah, I, I think that definitely it freshened the the company just needed a freshening up, and sometimes I mean there's been multiple examples of this in wrestling history where sometimes you lose a star and you think oh this is going to really hurt the company, but actually it, it kind of forces you to push fresh names and then that maybe would not have got, gotten the chance or as hard of a push because you have there's a difference between pushing a young guy because you think you should and pushing young guys when you literally have no choice like we have no one to fall back on like um like that's a, beneficial like after Bret Hart left the WWF and you know within a year like the top of the car looked extremely different than yeah, like, uh, what you would think <laughs> How many times in wrestling have we seen a company, well, even WWF slash E, you know, they, they'll push, they would push somebody for, you know, four months, six months, a year. And if it wasn't working out, they would go back to like their last big star, like Hogan or, or whoever. And if that star is literally gone, you can't, you, you really have to commit in a way you can't, you couldn't otherwise. You, you can't just say, well, at the first sign of weakness, we'll go back to the last guy that worked. You, you have to make it work. Right. They lost Brett and Sean at the same time. And I don't think uh, Styles and Daniels were quite the the Brett and Sean of uh, ROH, but it's still, you know, a big difference. And also just in general, like I, when you say like CM Punk and Cabana versus Daniels and Whitmer, I'm not like, oh man, what could have been, you know, like that's not like, <laughs> it's not like you feel really bad about that match not happening. And I, and I sure, I'm sure it would have been like, they would have put in a really hard effort. And it would have been so, at least somewhat entertaining and maybe really good, but it's just, yeah, it's just not a sexy, it's not the kind of match that, you know, young teenage me would have gone, I have to buy a DVD to see this match. I, I just, but it, is, but, it is, but it is sexy in the sense of like the, 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 the all the wrestlers were very sexy. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think this is kind of the end of this story, but, in the time between the last show and this one, the PW Torch still reported, I'll quote Wade Keller, Ring of Honor is going to tape an empty arena match between Teddy Hart and Steve Carino at the Ring of Honor training facility in Langhorne, Pennsylvania on March 23rd. So um, this was a story, obviously there was been rumors for a while before this, and I don't think it ever happened, but I think this is about as close to it and as specific as it got where they actually have a date and location and they just never did it. Now that, now that's a sexy match. <laughs> it, it, uh, I was going to say something, and then I realized, one, I didn't know what I was going to say, and two, it probably wouldn't have been nice. So even though I didn't know exactly what I was going to say, so I'm just going to cut myself off and go to these Ring of Honor Newswire bits. There was a few examples of them trying to push stories between the shows just through the Newswire. Um in, on April 2nd, they said, Ring of Honor officials keep urging Hydro to break away from Special K and focus on pure wrestling, but Hydro's more into partying. And then there was uh, 
On April 4th, Ring of Honor wrote, a few people have been ruled out as to who vandalized the Carnage Crew's bags on March 13th. I like that they just say vandalized. Uh, Special K has been ruled out as they were all beat up after Scramble Cage 2. Many initially believed it was Teddy Hart or a member of his crew, but they have been ruled out since they weren't even in the building during Scramble Cage 2. And also, Special K have not been heard from since they were destroyed in Scramble Cage 2 on March 13th. Rumors have it that there is some dissension in the group. And then they continue on April 8th. Ring of Honor officials are attempting to book Hydro against pure wrestlers on upcoming shows in effort to get Hydro to leave the Special K raving lifestyle behind and get serious about his career. However, Ring of Honor officials are having a hard time getting in touch with any Special K members after the Scramble Cage 2 beating. So, Ring, one of, those Ring of Honor officials are like really trying to be Hydro's dad. It's, <laughs> that is it's interesting. A, it's like, I mean, it's, it seems like if I was Hydro, I'd be like, you're not the boss of me, old man. Even though I guess sort of they are the boss of him because they like are his boss at work. <laughs> it is interesting because uh, Hydro isn't even on this show, but they were between the last show and this one. They're really, you know, there was. I, I feel like Ring of Honor did a good job where if you just watched the DVDs, you didn't miss like any story beats that were on the website, like anything really essential. But there were the stories were pushed between the shows on the website in in like, like if you just watched the DVDs, you would go, Oh, this is where this is starting. But you wouldn't realize, no, for the last three weeks, they've actually been reinforcing this same story point on the website. I said this a long time ago on the show, but there were kind of, I mean, I would actually say that there is some stuff that you miss if you just watch the DVDs because there was sort of like a, Real-time continuity. Like, if you followed the shows from show to show, very few people could go to every Ring of Honor show, but, you know, you'd be able to follow the results live on the on the message board and, like, different websites and stuff. And, you know, to build up to shows and stuff like that, they would push certain concepts and ideas in uh, on, the, on, like, the news wires and stuff that you wouldn't ever hear about if you just watched the DVDs. And the DVDs always obviously came out, like, months after the fact, so... I actually do think that there was another level that you were able to get if you followed it on the website versus uh, if you just watched and ordered the DVDs and never would, you know, never knew what was on the website. I do think um, one thing that was really important with the newswires was for a company like Ring of Honor that ran two, three times a month, it was really – and like you were saying, if you don't live in the area, you have to wait for the DVDs and stuff – the Newswire was like a huge part of the reason for people like me why you'd keep thinking about Ring of Honor and visiting the website every you know day or two between shows. Like it would keep it would keep the company in your mind because they would they would do a good starting around this point where they switched from like the locker room scoops to the more frequent Newswire. They did a good job of like dripping out little pieces of information on a regular basis to just keep you in the habit of you felt like you had to keep checking the website every day just in case there was some match announcement or some little angle being teased and i i think they did a really good job with that yeah i mean it's hard to keep people focused on events that they can't actually see while it happens like that they know that they're gonna have to wait months to see but they want to know what happens so like there you know there were a ton of fans that would that would follow just the text results of the different shows and it would be like a really exciting Saturday night to just watch to watch the results get updated. I'm sure you can relate to that because yeah. there they were, you know, we wouldn't actually be able to see it for a long time after that, but obviously we weren't going to avoid spoilers for that long, so we we needed to know what was happening and that newswire kind of kept 
kept that continuity going. Yeah, I, I wish I wish at the young age I was uh, that these shows were happening. I wish I could say I wasn't following a lot of those shows through the live results on Saturday nights, but I definitely was. I definitely did not have something better to do a lot of Saturday nights and was refreshing to see what the reviews are, the matches, what the results were. And I um I always say back then, not that in a lot of ways this isn't the wrestling we have now isn't better the fact that we get everything pretty much either immediately or almost immediately. But back then there was this three waves you got as a ring of honor fan of you got the results, the the night they happened of the people that were there live. Then if you were in a person like me that got the shows like way out in Canada and you had to wait a while, you would always get that second wave of reviews from the first people that got the DVDs, usually like in the Northeast that got them quick in the mail. And then finally you'd get to actually watch yourself. So you got like, these three waves of anticipation that finished with you actually getting to watch the show yourself where nowadays everyone's watching every show at the same time. Like I feel like nowadays, if you don't watch a show within 24 hours, you're not in the conversation where in the old days it was like, there was different groups of ring of honor fans having conversations about the show at like different times for a month to two months after the fact. Oh, sometimes you're talking up to like three or four months. And, um, yeah, I I, agree, I would agree with that. I obviously there are many benefits to the way it is now. Everyone has access to everything, but I mean, I think it would be foolish to say that there weren't any benefits to the old way, where you, you're not kind of you know things are more special, and you don't you're not you don't have all that instant gratification, and you kind of things get to simmer and feel a little bit more important. I mean, yeah, it, there's just you know it's just sometimes just way too much to keep up with now. And there's always been a lot of wrestling, but we couldn't see most of it. So the stuff that you could see and really prioritize felt very special. And uh, almost every Ring of Honor show back then, I think, fit that description. Definitely, and that brings us to the show itself. Ring of Honor Reborn Stage 1 took place April 23rd, 2004 at the St. Paul Armory in St. Paul, Minnesota in front of a reported crowd of 400 fans. So before we get into the show itself, there was a few things kind of surrounding the show. First off, if you've been following us as every show, we always give out the reported observer attendance. 400 would be on the low side of what Ring of Honor would do and probably not the number they wanted. And one of the main re- one of the reasons it could be other than a debuting market that they had never run before is that they were running head to head that night with the WWE. So we'll go to uh, Dave Meltzer in the Observer. He writes, "Ring of Honor drew 400 fans in St. Paul, which was head to head with a WWE house show." At this point, I'll call it simply a weird coincidence how WWE hadn't run St. Paul in 18 months and returned on the same night Ring of Honor booked. If it happens a second time, then I'd view it as something else. Ring of Honor was giving away $5 off any seat coupons at an indie show earlier in the week, plus put out flyers on the cars at the WWE show inviting people to come down to the armory, saying that their show would last much longer and you could come and see Ricky Steamboat and the main events for free – all reports were it was a strong show, and I found a different report from a message board poster, Capital City Kyle, who uh, wrote into the PW Insider. I mean, yeah, he, he gave them some live reports, and he basically confirmed that last part. He said, actually, that someone from Ring of Honor was handing out flyers at the WWE show in town, letting people know that they could leave the WWE show at any time and see the finish of the Ring of Honor show for free if they presented their ticket at the door. So... That's a pr- I don't know if Ring of Honor ever did that. I mean, I don't know if they ever had a chance to do that where they were competing so openly, but that's a pretty 
interesting, aggressive move to basically, I don't know how many people took that up. Um, the main event of the St. Paul WWE house show was Chris Benoit versus Triple H, which is a pretty big match. But they were saying, you know, hey, if you'd want to, for any reason, leave the show earlier, this show ends before our show, just show up. You can come in for free and see, like, all the biggest matches at the end of the card. I think it's kind of a cool move, um, you know, given, like, what they were trying to do and they were new in the market. That said, I do think it's funny that, you know, it just feels so different now, like, that they're advertising point was yeah our show is going to be way longer so it's just going to have such a long <laughs> show because that was obviously one of the criticisms of roh and now it's funnily enough it's the mainly the criticism of wwe <laughs> yeah it's weird how in some ways wwe became more like ring of honor and then ring of honor became more i don't know if they became more like wwe but less like the ring of honor we're covering right now well one thing about evolved shows at least the ones i've been to you know which is uh gabe Spolsky's current um venture is they're all pretty short compared to old ROH shows like tight two and a half hours even less sometimes so um they've certainly like I think the yeah I think PWG shows can still be very long but in a lot of ways the indies have kind of gotten away from that overly long thing also yeah and now you have people complaining about you know uh fighter fest or no fight for the fall in the last uh aew show i think was four and a half hours and people were complaining about that being too long so now yeah like you said the big companies are doing the marathon shows and the indies are now pairing it back if if i could i mean there's a lot i would change about modern wrestling but i think one thing that i think i would really like as a dictator if i was in charge of wrestling do is like get rid of hour long in the arena pre-shows um i just i don't get I don't get why they have those. Like, I think it's just way better. I, I think it's way more exciting when the match that you see on TV is the first match that the audience sees and they're really hyped for it. And I like pre-shows where they just do a hard sell for the show like in the old days. And um, yeah, I don't think the AEW pre-shows have been doing them any favors, but maybe I'm in the minority. Or even if you're doing a pre-show, if you want to do like an hour-long pre-show but have one match just right before like the top of the hour when the actual pay-per-view starts, at least then like your most hardcore fans won't feel like I have to show up at the very start of the pre-show and stay an additional one to two hours because some of those pre-shows used to, you know, on like WrestleMania are two hours. But the way they stagger out the matches, it's like if you don't want to miss a match, you have to come right at the very beginning sometimes to just ensure that it's not going to – uh you're not going to miss a thing. Right. But uh, PW, uh, PW Torch, Wade Keller, talked to a WWE insider who he said WWE running the same night as Ring of Honor was just a coincidence. The WWE insider said, quote, it's just a coincidence. Vince doesn't even know Ring of Honor exists. And I, I, I don't have a hard time believing that Vince didn't know that Ring of Honor existed by, at this point. I definitely think probably other people in the company knew Ring of Honor existed. I know there was talk in interviews that like Wade was telling Gabe and stuff that I know some of the wrestlers watched the tapes. And I know the Observer months earlier reported that one of the things that helped rehabilitate uh, Eddie Guerrero and get his job back with WWE was they noticed his performances at places like Ring of Honor, that he was getting like good word of mouth, that he was really on the straight and narrow and looking good. And so I, I can imagine that Vince McMahon himself didn't know ring of honor at this point, but I'm sure people that reported to Vince McMahon knew ring of honor. Um, first of all, Paul London, obviously he was already yeah. in WWE and 
you think that Vince didn't hear anything about that whole scandal that that we had just talked about on the last show? You think like that didn't even like cross his ears? He might not have really like cared or like thought much about Ring of Honor. Like is it like as if it was any different than any other indie? But I guarantee you, he had heard of Ring of Honor by uh, April of two thousand and four. Do you think – I mean there were some people at this time who thought WWE was doing this on purpose. Do you think there's anything to that, that WWE was trying to run directly against Ring of Honor in St. Paul? I mean as uh, Dave wrote, even though Dave doesn't believe that was the case, he did note – I mean WWE hadn't run St. Paul in 18 months and then magically the day they come is the day Ring of Honor's is running their first ever show there. Uh, I mean I don't know. I mean I wouldn't think so but I guess you never know. I mean it is quite a coincidence. And the very previous show was Ring of Honor piggybacking on WrestleMania weekend for the first time. And we do know – I mean I imagine they booked all these dates before that happened. But like we do know that Ring of Honor – I mean we don't know nowadays with WWE. They don't like the idea of other people trying to get a piece of their pie when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah. You know? And you know Vince is obviously very petty. So who, yeah. the, who the hell knows? Yeah, who knows? Um so, the, yeah, they would not come back to St. Paul. The Observer wrote that they had committed to return dates to both St. Paul and uh, Chicago in July for they, another double shot. They came back in 2007 for sure. Yeah, but um, they wrote at the time, advances in both markets are said to be solid but not great, but good enough that they committed to come back. And then after the shows happened, Dave corrected it himself in The Observer or the typical plans changed. He wrote, the plan to return to St. Paul in July was changed and the swing will now be Chicago Ridge along with a Milwaukee debut more because of how tough the Minneapolis to Chicago travel was. And uh, Matt, I'm sure the travel was bad, but I bet you if they drew more than 400 fans, they probably would have given it another shot to do that double shot. Right, but I bet that if it was closer and they only drew 400 fans, they would also have given it another shot. Yeah, exactly. So. It's like both combined probably to make it bigger than one problem or the other. But it's it's kind of bad because this crowd I thought really was good for its size. Like it was a very lively crowd that seemed to know the wrestlers. And, and um, in addition to that, there is something to be said where they got 400 fans. I don't know how many of those. I don't know if when they say 400, is that people that showed up by the end or is that 400 paid? But either way, like that's it running against the WWE. So it would have been nice if I was a fan living there. I would have been said, come on, run one more time and see what you can do when you're not going up against the biggest wrestling company in the world. Like, Yeah, and but it would probably – Yeah, I, I do agree that it probably does seem like difficult travel though. So maybe like if they were going to go back to St. Paul and make it just like its own Saturday night shot and see how that goes. And then one more little bit of trivia. Uh, this was the very first Ring of Honor show that Dave Prezak did any work for. And the Newswire, on April 27th, after the show, they wrote in the Ring of Honor Newswire, Dave Prezak did a great job as backstage interviewer for the St. Paul and Chicago home releases and is welcome back to Ring of Honor anytime. So to make clear, he was not a ring – he was not an announcer, but he did like the introductions on the mic instead of Steven DeAngelis who wasn't there. And he also did the backstage interviews instead of uh, Gary Michael Capetta, who wasn't there. And he was so by far the best person they've ever had doing backstage interviews. Like it wasn't even close to like anyone they'd ever had prior to that. He was definitely better than Gary Michael Capetta, although I know he has his – no, I mean he was. Like he – I mean Gary Michael Capetta has his charms, but he's like – he was corny I guess on purpose, but he still was. And um, and Sugar Sean Price had – let's say he had yet to come into his own. How (laughs) Let's put it that way. And – 
Dave Frazak was good. Like he was just like traditionally good in the sense that you might expect a wrestling interviewer to be. I I still love the dorky sweater wearing nerd vibe of my friend Gary Michael Capetta, my friend who I've never talked to. And I was going to say, is he your friend? I was going to say, is he your friend? Because I mean, you have a lot of powerful friends these days. (laughs) Definitely. Um, No, I'd I'd love to make a friend of Gary Michael Capetta, but anyway, we start the show. With the return of Homicide, doing a backstage promo, Homicide says he used to have respect for Samoa Joe, but now after he attacked Julius Smokes on the last show, he doesn't have respect for him any longer. Uh, uh, One thing I wrote in my notes here, I swear when Homicide says Rottweilers, it sounds like he's saying Rockwiders. Those Rockwiders is going to come for you, Joe. Uh, Homicide says the last time he faced Joe, he almost killed him. And tonight, not only will he become champion, he will kill him this time. I feel like this isn't the first time that it's like an ROH promo where someone's just literally said, I will kill you on a promo. And I, and I, I always feel like, you know, you don't, like, I feel like that's almost like cheating at a promo because over the many, many years of wrestling, wrestlers say very intense things to each other, but it is very rare that you will hear one wrestler say to another that he is going to literally kill him. And I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like that's like an unwritten wrestling rule. Like you, do, you don't just say that because it's uncreative and I don't know. I would love a show where a wrestler threatened to kill the other and then the match gets canceled because the wrestler that's being threatened calls the cops and it's just like, yeah, my life's been threatened and then cops just show up, handcuff, homicide, drag him away. The good, that'd be good stuff. But uh, I, anyway, like the... <laughs> the promo ends with homicide. Just he says he hates Joe just like he hates Steve Carino. So the last line was, "Your days are over. Your days are numbered." <laughs> and somehow, somehow that made sense. I don't know why, but it did. And again, I I read the newswires, so I don't think I missed something. It's possible. No acknowledgement as why homicide is back after the last time we saw him, where the he did the whole promo about how you don't know when I'm coming back. I might never come back. I'm, but I'm definitely coming back. Like that whole mysterious thing about how the last match he wrestled against Punk was the biggest match of his life. Like no acknowledgement of any of that. No explanation at all. No, this just, was just a like just a like a normal promo. Like, hey, I'm homicide. I'm doing a match. Yeah. I mean, I guess doing that big dramatic promo, I mean, it got him a title match, I guess. Well, that and Julius Smokes talking shit, but it got his way. So next we cut to the Carnage crew cutting a promo in in what looks like the exact same spot backstage Homicide just did. You can easily imagine literally like Gabe going cut and then Carnage crew walking to the same spot and then starting up. Well, that's what me and, uh, that's what me and Gene used to do in the old days, right? Like, uh, like in his, uh, you know, syndicated promos, one guy would walk out like on one side and then another guy would walk in from the other side and they would just, he would just continue doing promos. Yeah, I don't think they've ever done that literal move. A lot of times on these ROH home releases, I find they try and find if they're doing multiple backstage promos, which they almost always are, they try to find different spots backstage for different promos, but this time it was like literally same exact spot. They should but, have had uh, they should have had like a background with like a blue background with clouds and like a logo that said Reborn Stage 1. Like at the yeah, old like on the old like on the old like SummerSlams and stuff. Gabe screaming at people to put out that cigarette, like Mean Gene. Exactly. But, but um, anyway, the Carnage crew talk about how they had to work so long to earn the fans' respect. 33 consecutive shows they worked until they finally made the main event. And when they did, it was the main event of Ring of Honor's biggest show in history. It was supposed to be the greatest night of their lives. And then someone shit in their bags, Matt. 
Uh, DeVito says the worst part is they don't even know who did it. Uh, the crew says that's not that's to- not the worst part. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say yeah, the worst part might be the feces in your uh, your bag, but maybe but if that, only but if part. only we knew. <laughs> Um, I know if you, if I, if, I know for all of us to have ever gone to work and the toilet's been clogged and you're just, you just, no one did the courtesy of flushing. Definitely the biggest problem you're thinking is, but whose is this? Like, that's what's on your mind. Not anything else. It's just like, if only I knew who's, who's this belonged to. This would be a way better experience for me right now. But, uh, the crew says that they're going to find out who did it. Tonight, they're going to face the Ring Crew Express, and Loke says, unless the Ring Crew Express can tell the car crew who shit in their bags, they're going to assume it's them and take out their anger on them, which doesn't seem quite fair. Sound, sound logic. I also like in this promo that they talk about um, how Loke got a 10-cent raise from his boss, and <laughs> it's like, they're, they were ahead of their time. They were like working-class heroes. Move over, AOC. It's time for LOC. <laughs> Thank, thank you, thank you. I, I also love that um, this is one of those examples. I, I think I wrote about this on Twitter right after I watched this segment, but this is like one of my favorite goofy wrestling tropes, which is I love mysteries in wrestling, but I love the wrestling trope of wrestlers are trying to solve a mystery and their their way to solve the mystery is just to wrestle people in the hopes that one of them will just admit to a crime while they wrestle them. Like It's like they're not finding clues. They're not asking questions. It's more just like, we're going to wrestle the Ring Crew Express, and hopefully they'll tell us they did it or they know who did it. On the other hand, if this was like TNA, I'm not, I don't remember if Russo was booking at this point. I think maybe not. But if this was Russo TNA, they would put the Carnage crew into all these skits where they're like going into bathrooms after guys shit to take like – to like inspect – Samples. Yeah, samples and inspecting <laughs> them with magnifying glasses and stuff. And I don't know if that would be better. I guess I guess it would be. It would be really good. It would be the best, actually, now that I mention it. <laughs> you just talked yourself into it. I did. And then we get another segment here. We cut to um, – we're in the ring before the show for an installment of Samoa Joe's ring, this regular ske- segment where he uh, demonstrates moves on, on lucky Ring of Honor students. This time, Joe's demonstrating chokes, noting that unlike Homicide, he doesn't need a noose to choke somebody out. So that's Joe referencing that the one time Homicide beat him was in a um, no no DQ DQ match at Empire State Showdown where he choked him out with a noose. Yes. uh, A memorable finish for sure. And Joe starts his lesson when Brian Danielson interrupts. Brian doubts Joe's teaching credentials, and he demonstrates on Shane Hagedorn how to do a front face lock rather than an illegal choke. Joe and Brian then get into it a little bit over their recent tag title challenge where they lost the match before Brian challenges Joe to a world title match and walks away. This is like the second show in recent memory where like they're building up a match they won't get to do for a bunch of months, but... Yeah, They're but definitely- when when you can actually pull off a months long build like that, it's good. The problem yeah. is when you try to do it and then low key uh, gets fired a bunch of times. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then finally, we get one more very short segment outside the building where, for some reason, they felt the need to tell us it was 2 p.m. when they did this segment. We see Dun and Marcos right outside the armory. They say their catchphrases. That's it. And- I, I I guess this was the um the reborn version of the hit squad going on a bus. So <laughs> instead of being on the bus for twenty minutes saying nothing, they just the the ring crew press just say one thing and everyone's excited and that's it. And I think I like this version better. Yeah, much more brevity here. 
And that brings us to the very first match of the night. Matt Stryker defeated Nigel McGuinness by pinfall in 10 minutes, 13 seconds, by just, I, I'll just call it a standard pinfall attempt where Nigel couldn't bridge out of it because he had an injured leg. Matt, oh, kind of a big weekend for Matt Stryker. In some ways, I would say this weekend's like the last time you can really say Matt Stryker has any semblance of a push. He's getting a world title match the next night. How did you think this match turned out? Um, I, I thought Nigel looked good. I didn't think this match was really anything special. It was pretty short. I didn't think it was much better than like your average Matt Stryker match. Honestly, I, I, it was, you know, um, Nigel kind of was like, got to, for the first time that I can remember, really start showing off some of that British-y kind of stuff. He even tries at one point the Doug Williams, like, get out of a leg lock and power your way into a headlock thing. I don't think that he did it quite as well as uh, as Doug Williams did. I don't know uh, do you, if you agree with me or not on that one. But, yeah. But, uh, you know, the crowd was hot for it. And um, I don't know. It's something about Matt Stryker. It feels like, even though he's about to get a title match, his heart doesn't seem in it anymore. Like, I, I hate to, like, pick out the way guys' bodies looks bodies look because, like, I don't think that's a be-all and end-all. But you can definitely see that Matt Stryker's body is not what it was the year before. Like, he's already losing some definition. Like, I don't know if his like he has other things going on in his life. I don't know if he's kind of frustrated with how kind of stagnant he's been. But he doesn't seem as into it as he did when he first went to ROH. And it really hasn't been that long. You know, but a year is not really all that long. But, um, but I don't know. I, um, I, I, some of the commentary stuff, uh, to note is, um, Gabe talking about how he was still hoping to have, uh, the pure champion AJ Styles back soon. So I guess this was before the TNA thing was fully settled or maybe that he was in denial. I don't know what, um, um, someone might have to, uh, ask him that, but, um, uh, they already start building up the Punk uh, has plans for Steamboat later, so this is kind of a show-long angle. I like CM Punk on commentary tonight. I thought he was a little better. Um, they maybe focused on him a little too much, as we'll see later, because he was involved in a lot of angles. But um, as far as the match itself, um, like I said, Striker. I don't know. There was just something missing from him here. Uh, not, not that he's been great the last few times we've seen him, but I could just tell like he just wasn't being his best self. Nigel was trying really hard, and I'm, I think he probably made a pretty good impression because uh, he did look very good. So I think uh, all in all, I guess it was a plus for him. But I found the match even slightly disappointing, honestly. I thought this match was slightly above average. Like if I had to do star rings, like two and three quarters or something. But um, it, it is crazy how it's interesting that you picked up on the striker like body stuff. To me, it, it's so wild how – like. To me, the dividing line I would put with Matt Stryker, and we're we're pretty deep into his Ring of Honor run now, is like pre the start of the Field of Honor tournament and after that, because it felt like before then Matt Stryker was better than my memory of him, and then after that he's exactly what my memory of him was. Like it's crazy how in what was I mean we've talked about this before, but when what is supposed to be a whole tournament that was kind of built around pushing him. That's kind of like when the switch turns off, not on. Yeah, well, and, it actually makes sense. And if you remembered him like this, since this was the era that you were mostly watching. Y- yeah, exactly. And I, I think for a lot of people, you know, they might – some of those early to mid-2003 shows, they probably did not watch. And they don't real, they don't see those earlier matches with, with guys like Chad Collier or, you know, uh, Reckless Youth that are 
pretty entertaining and they just kind of see this very bland middle of the road guy who is going to get a title match with Samoa Joe the next night. Uh, I thought this match was fine though. Like the crowd was shockingly into it. Like this crowd was a very good crowd for most of the night. And I think they were just really excited to see ring of honor wrestling, the people that were there. Um, I, one, one, I, thing I, one thing I forgot to mention real quick was Nigel debuted like a new submission hold in the match. He's like, oh, this is Nigel's new hold. And then Stryker got out of it like immediately. And I thought <laughs> like it was like that's a weird way to debut a new hold. Like you shouldn't draw attention to that. Like, you know, even if he did it, like just be like, oh, Stryker got out of that hole. Like don't mention like, oh, this is Nigel's big new thing that was a complete failure the first time he did it. Like that's not really the best way to do it. It's hard to describe what the submission was. It was an arm submission of some sort. <laughs> I, I thought um, there was one part of the match I really, I really liked, which was there was a sequence where Stryker just kept going for the ankle lock over and over again. And that's when Nigel really got to show off. He kept finding ways to escape it and cling some more of the British-inspired escapes. And I really liked that. And obviously him working on the ankle set up the finish where, you know, it's a standard kind of pinning combination. And it, if – um. Nigel could have just bridged out of it. He could have gotten out of it, but because his leg is hurt from the ankle lock, you know, he could, he can't. So it, it, there's a nice little simple bit of storytelling there. They do a few bigger moves. Uh, Striker actually outright just takes Punk's devil lock DDT where he captures the leg, which kind of funny considering that Punk is calling this match. Uh, yeah, Gabe actually says on commentary, he's stealing your move. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nigel takes a big super superplex variation. It, it's not a bad match, but... It's another match where, you know, Nigel is still looking good in every one of his matches, but he's still in search of that breakout match. And that striker is still, you know, on the verge of the biggest match you could say of his entire Ring of Honor run. And yet, like you said, he just looks like the same old Matt Stryker. It's kind of a weird microcosm. I feel like his placement of the card, like a microcosm of his push is this match because he's getting a world title match the next night. And here he is like going 50-50 with a new guy in the opener. On the night before, it's it's like this weird thing where it feels like ever since the uh, the field of honor tournament that he won, he his push has been the same or lower than it was before. But everyone acts like he's getting this huge push, like it's, all these opportunities he's, he's getting because he won the field of honor. But then all these other guys are getting similar opportunities that didn't win. It seems pretty clear, like that after the field of honor. They just felt like they had to give Matt Striker a title match to justify that, and they were like, "All right, well, let's." Uh, just, you know, blow it off on another show that has a loaded lineup otherwise. I mean, that's definitely what happened, right? Yeah, and uh, going to commentary, I guess we, I just to clarify, I mean, you mentioned it, I think people could guess, but this was just Gabe and Punk, so not Punk's first time doing commentary, but this is the first time where it was just Gabe and Punk. There's no Doug. I believe the Doug era of commentary is over. It's over, yeah. And, and so Mark Nolte will debut in a couple of shows, though. Can't wait. Yeah, and uh, so that puts Gabe in the kind of the difficult position where there's a few matches on the show where Gabe has to call segments or an, an entire match completely by himself. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, there he doesn't do that bad, I would say. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying is yeah. it's a difficult job. Like Lenny Leonard is a guy, and he deservedly so with Evolve, who gets great praise for being really good at commentating by itself. Because I think that's like an extra skill you have to have above even just regular commentating, like doing it all by yourself. I, there's a whole extra list of challenges there. And yeah, I, I would actually say like Gabe – 
you know, people, you know, people don't like Gabe's commentary. We think it, I, I, at least I think it's kind of, there's some weird quirks to it, but I think it's not as bad as people say. And I, I'll say this, like he does not get any worse doing it alone. And I think most commentators would have a difficult job, like keeping it up, doing it alone. I agree. So, um, Punk always needles Gabe on commentary. He describes him at one point during this match as one gigantic run-on sentence, which I thought was mean, but also a good burn. Um, I, did you also notice, I thought this was like the best lighting Ring of Honor had for a show in quite some time. Hmm. I do think it was better than the recent shows, yeah. I I thought that the lighting at um, at our best was was solid, too. But definitely like those shows at the beginning of the year, like that Baltimore show, boy, that was that was horrendous. Yeah, maybe maybe it's, that's just me having like like just Stockholm syndrome or something. Where after some of those shows we've seen to start this year, the lighting, like anything, looks great now to me. That isn't like incredibly white washed out or not color corrected. Like just oh, thank God this looks decent. Like this is amazing, but. Uh, Gabe also on commentary said, if you're wondering why the show is called reborn, it's because they're in a new area. There's new talent on the show and spots are open up and down the card. And it's funny because there's a few times during the show where they kind of talk about ring of honor being reborn, but they can't really tell you like the real obvious reason. It's like the giant monkey in the room. What's, what's precipitated all these changes. They, they can't really say, but they do sell that, you know, this is a new era for ring of honor talent that you might have seen on a show here or there before Gabe says are now going to really be given a chance to, to shine, which is kind of an interesting way to put it. Cause that's kind of like saying before they weren't given a great chance to shine, but it's the way they kind of sell it. Gabe even says during this match that Nigel's look good, but he hasn't been given a high profile match yet, which I mean, he's, he, did, he still has, he still hasn't <laughs> for the record. <laughs> Although you could say, I mean, it wasn't high on the card, but he did uh, get a decent amount of time against Jerry Lynn on the last show. Right. Although so, Jerry Lynn is not an ROH regular. So like, you can also argue that like in terms of like level on the card, it still wasn't, that high profile it was more of like a a special attraction match also uh the number one contenders trophy was not on the line in this match and i I do feel like that's a sign they've kind of forgotten or given up on that to a large degree because one of the big things originally with the number one contenders trophy was oh you know it'll be like a second title and whoever has it will have to defend it between them getting their title shot and now it's just here's a match and they outright say like it's not for grabs doesn't matter if Stryker loses. He's facing Joe tomorrow. There's also no top five on this show. They don't. They don't do a top five. Wow, I didn't notice that too. They really are reborn, Matt. They uh, really. They really are reborn. And um, you know, it's funny because the early part of the show doesn't feel reborn at all. Um, eventually, it starts to feel a little more reborn. But I, uh, the one person on the show that makes some reference to uh, to the changes that were uh, that were. That, or what caused the changes, I should say. It's a vague reference, but it's in there. Is Alex Shelley on a promo later in the night? But uh, we'll get to that. And I guess my I, I had a lot of notes on this match for some reason, but my last note is just, Matt, I might have been hearing this wrong. Did the crowd at one point chant during this match, we like wrestling? They did at the very beginning. They said, we <laughs> like wrestling, which I think is it's, it's cute. I thought that was adorable, and also I like it because it's like a very reasonable chance. It's like not we love wrestling or this is awesome or anything like that. It's just like 
we enjoy this. This is preferable to not it, watching this. Like just a very, it, it's the kind of chant I believe we can all get behind. We like wrestling. Like this is, I want a chant that's just seven out of 10, seven out of 10. Like I think those are the chants we need more of as we enter a new decade. But three and three quarter star match, three and three quarter <laughs> star match. I, um, and it feels like a chant like you might hear it like a modern day PWG show. So this 2004 St. Paul crowd was ahead of its time. Definitely. Uh, after that match, we go backstage for a promo from wrestling's cool nerd dad, Ricky Steamboat. He's wearing a leather jacket this time, so I was very excited to see that. Uh, he says he signed on to oversee several matches in the feud between the Prophecy and the Second City Saints. Ricky says this feud reminds him of feuds he had with Don Morocco and Mr. Fuji. Uh, it also seemed like this promo was like cut off. Like, 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 like The ending of the promo didn't air because it felt like the edit away from the promo was very abrupt. <laughs> But but I thought that these promos, you always saw what happened before and after the cameras were rolling. <laughs> That's the other part of Reborn. They've discovered editing. That whole thing will never happen again. Yeah, we, we can cut stuff. Um, match two, the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke defeated the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos in 8 minutes, 18 seconds, when DeVito pinned Marcos after hitting a spike pile driver. Um. I thought this match was just, it was just an average middle of the road match, but I did get kind of a kick out of it. I think this is one of those matches where if you don't watch every Ring of Honor show leading up to this, you, you'll just go, oh, it's just a match. But I did think it was kind of, it, it was like, had a bit of novelty for me to just to see where Dunn and Marcos actually get eight minutes and they work a perfectly regular kind of formula traditional tag match because it seems like Carnage Crew and Dunn and Marcos up to this point have been in so many, you know, either with the Carnage Crew like hardcore matches or both teams have been a lot of um, scramble matches. So it was even though there wasn't like much really interesting or great to this match, there is something just weird about like just, oh, they're having like an eight minute really traditional tag match and these two teams that have gotten very little opportunity to do that. Um, and they did a fine job. Like it's, it's, it's not a bad match. Their execution isn't quite as sharp as maybe like the top end indie guys. But in terms of like just what they do in the match, I thought it was perfectly acceptable wrestling. I mean, what did you think? It's funny because this was like the first match these two ever had against each other was uh, in, in ROH was like oh, with the first match either team had in ROH was against each other. But of course, it was just a Carnage crew like squash. This is like a real match they're having now. And yeah, it was so in some ways, I agree with you, like the charm of it. And they had a perfectly fine match. They they tease the stage die, but don't do it, which will come into play much later in the night. But um, on the other hand. The uh, the downside was the Carnage Crew's whole thing is that they are pissed off and they are going to take it out on the Ring Crew Express. And then they wrestle in a much less angry way than they normally do, right? They do, like, basic wrestling to start and they – like, I guess they sort of end up working heel with, but without cheating. But they're not exactly wrestling in a super aggressive way, which kind of belies the whole character arc that they're on. Um but yeah, I agree with you sorry, about the solidness of the match. I thought there was some fun commentary on there, like um, like you said, like suggesting that the Carnage crew do a DNA analysis on the poop, and <laughs> and Gabe was like, I don't think they saved the poop in order to do the test, and I I I appreciated that. Um, I also um, I also liked that when Gabe brought up the uh, the angle the first time 
Punk is just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like he just was <laughs> like, this is like, this is just ridiculous. And my, my number one favorite was at the very end after the Carnage Crew won when Gabe goes, I guess they can eliminate Dunn and Marcos as suspects. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I, love I love that logic that like again that goes back to my fa- i love these wrestling detective angles where if you are like beat somebody up in a fight that means they can't have committed a crime against you a crime that happened a month earlier like clearly if Dunn and Marcos shit in our bags they would have beaten us in this wrestling match <laughs> what <laughs> what yeah <laughs> that was definitely that was definitely the most entertaining aspect of this match for sure the match itself was fine um yeah, yeah, and I think you made a good point where I don't even know if, how much the Carnage crew worked as heels, but I did note too when I was watching this heels in the heels in the sense that they were like dominating and like getting the heat on Dunn and Marcos. Yeah, and they're put in the position to be the heels because the D- Dunn and Marcos are really over here, like they are in pretty much every market, and the, like. I would say the country kind of get overshadowed in that sense because they're so excited to see Dunn and Marcos. Uh, and even with that spot where they cut off, cut off the dive, which does have a purpose that they're setting up for later in the night, like you said. But even that, that's kind of a heel move where you're taking away from the crowd something they want to see. And I feel I feel like that was the one thing that was kind of weird about this match where – in the special K feud, the Carnage crew was positioned as the good guys. Even with this who shit in our peg storyline, Loke and DeVille are going to be positioned as the good guys. And yet in this match, like they're put against this really lovable team. And and like you said, are kind of working like to be the heavies. So that was the one weird part where it probably was kind of going against the grain for them. But the work itself is fine. Speaking of which, um, speaking of which, do you think that given how popular Dunn and Marcos were in every market, ROH should have eventually done more with them? Or do you think it's like it would be diminishing returns and they pretty much got exactly what they needed out of them for the whole time? Um, I feel like they should have at least tried more. I don't know when you exactly you would do that, but it definitely felt like they were booking them like they thought that they were just a novelty act. Like they, they didn't like it. It feels like they thought this is the most we can get out of them. And we like them and we like having them on the shows, but I never saw them like at this point, at least like they've been booked at the point where them having an eight minute straight wrestling match is a reason for me to go. Ooh, like that's exciting. They're getting a real shot here where, you know, that, that tells you they haven't been getting like a lot of time or a lot of prominent positions. And, you know, your show – not everyone on your show can be a main eventer. You do need some more funny acts that can do brief little quick things. But, I mean, if I was running things, I probably would have just given them a shot around this point to do something a little longer against a a, a really good team. But I can't blame them for not going there. Yeah, I agreed. Um. We would again return backstage for the return of good times, great memories with Colt Cabana with the usual on-screen graphic as always telling us that it's live from Chicago when it obviously isn't. Uh, Colt does a monologue like an old late night talk show monologues about Ring of Honor's website shifting to the more frequent scoops, the newswire instead of the locker room stuff, saying that he says that now we don't have to wait to learn things like how hairy Jimmy Jacobs taint is or when Allison Danger is having her period. Uh, Colt runs down Ring of Honor's tag division and says that he banged the Havana Pitbulls' mums, but then the Pitbulls actually show up and tell Colt not to mock them or their country. You skipped the best line where he said he banged, he, their mo- he banged their moms, so now they're the Cabana Pitbulls, which I thought was actually like the only funny thing he said. 
Um, Colt invites them to his desk to be guests, but they're not happy, the Pitbulls. Rocky Romero says they're only in Ring of Honor for one thing, to make money, get to the top, and make a name. I wrote, that's three things. Romero then says he's only here for one thing twice more in the next 15 seconds, including one time saying that the one reason he's here is to break bones and get to the top, which is, again, two things. Uh, Ricky Reyes, talking <laughs> like a robot, says they're tired of Colt mocking them and their country. And if he keeps it up, he'll be seeing a lot more of them a lot sooner than he expects. So that's that is, you know, building up already plenty of seed for something down the line because the Pitbulls will be taking the titles off of Cabana and Punk later in the year. But Matt, the one thing I really got out of oh wait, well the segment isn't over. There's a Becky Bayless part, but just going to this part, the one thing I really got out of this part of the segment, Matt is holy cow did Rocky Romero come a long way because he was so wooden and robotic here. He and Ray is, but Rocky is a guy, you know, he's a color commentator now. He still wrestles. He has a good bit of charisma. Holy cow has he come a long way because he had nothing here. He is like early Briscoe's level... I can't believe this guy ever got charisma level wooden in this segment. Yeah, and more than just lack of charisma, I I, I think it's more than it's 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 less that and more like he's just really bad at promos. Like uh, Ricky Reyes too, but like people talk about like Brian Danielson at the time, but like man, these guys made him seem like uh, Daniel Bryan almost. <laughs> yeah, that definitely. Like these guys, you said this about uh, Sugar Sean Price the other show. These guys almost seemed a little nervous to have it to have to do a promo. More than a little. Yeah. But then they leave, and the segment continues as Colt says he has a backup plan for the show, and he brings in a new guest, Becky Bayless. Colt asks her, where are Special K? Becky says she can't find any of them. They won't return any of her messages, which is, yes, the exact storyline they just did with Julia Smokes and Homicide. Um, she's flabbergasted. Colt praises her for using a big word like flabbergasted and says he wants her to show him touch her – he wants her to show him – her touching her elbows behind her back, which Colt claims is a thing only smart girls can do. She does. Colt then asks her to do jumping jacks. She does. And then the segment ends with Becky asking anyone to get her in touch with Special K and Colt singing Let's Get Physical. Uh, did you find yeah, that- did you find this really creepy or is it just that he was just being a heel? Like what do you what do you what was your what was your overall take on this in the end? This whole uh, Becky Bayless segment? It was both, but like I, I will say this is probably the best time to note uh, one thing we've done on the show. If you've listened for a long time or if you haven't, we do the man-on-woman violence thing. We didn't plan on it, but we've been counting the incidences of man-on-woman violence. We got like into the 20s, I believe, before on a show called Tradition Continues. Ring of Honor had a show that didn't have some form of man-on-woman violence. But since then, they've been continuing, and we we before the show, we were at 35 of 36 shows. And I have to inform you, as crazy as this is, this is the second show in Ring of Honor history that does not have man-on-woman violence. There is not one incidence of it. So why I bring it up here is because was this kind of a creepy over-sexualization of somebody and blah, blah, blah? Yes, but you know what? There's no man-on-woman violence on the show, so it's a step forward. Yeah, this was the most misogynistic thing on this particular show. So I guess, yes, a step in the right direction. Um, And... I guess if Allison Danger is not on tomorrow's show, then we maybe will be get our first um, our first ever no man and woman violence double shot weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you did note when I Let's when see. I mentioned this to you in Messenger, you were saying, well, the reason the man on woman violence didn't happen is because Allison Danger wasn't booked for this show, which I was like, oh, that's a good point. So yeah. if it, 
I forget what happens on the next show, but if there's no man on one bonds for the next show, I think I'll eventually I'll I'll retire the uh, the streak because if there's two shows in a row, I'm sure it will happen again down the road. But it definitely does. I can say yeah. from memory. <laughs> But I guess we can end the streak if there's no on the next show. So it really is Ring of Honor Reborn. But Yeah, Ring of Honor. See, you got your chance. You got your chance to end this streak. Can you go back in time 15-plus years and do it? But now we get to a match that doesn't quite feel reborn. We get John Walters defeating Just Incredible via, via pinfall in nine minutes, five seconds after he hits a lung blower. Matt, what the, obviously for John Walters, he was probably, I have to imagine, a little disappointed. You go from being booked against Brian Danielson to getting nine minutes against Justin Credible. How do you think they did with the time? I um, Well, the very first thing I wrote when they, uh, when they put that um, – well, when, when the match started was – I don't know about this one <laughs> because <laughs> it was reborn. I was hoping, I was looking forward to all the the rebirth, and then this match happened. And um, I mean, they they did some cool stuff. They um, like there was at one point where Walters hit like a you know a lung blower, like the backcracker move, like really high on Justin Credible's yeah. neck. And I guess that was actually the finish. And um, like that was cool. And the crowd was hot for it early. But they definitely quieted down, so like I, um, I don't think that's a great sign. I think it was a fairly basic match. I think Walters worked hard. He always does. I don't know. Credible, just not a good fit for this whole thing. And I've never, I mean, other than some of the, his early appearances when he was inexplicably over, I've never really thought he was such a good fit. Um, one, this- one notable thing was that they said this was the first time Walters had ever taken a plane to, to his show. That's pretty remarkable. This guy who was getting a push in like a fairly um, high or very high-profile indie promotion, and he had been, you know, had a big match at like with uh, Xavier that got a lot of buzz, and all that time he had never flown to a show. That's, that's pretty crazy. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, that's, I, felt, I felt like, oh, I felt happy for him as I watched this. Like, yeah, way to go, John Walters. You're moving up in the world. That, that, that led to – I noticed that too and that led to kind of a funny moment on commentary where uh, right after I think uh, Punk like mocks Walters not being flown before and then Gabe says, there's a time you weren't flown either, Punk, and Punk's like, that never happened, which I don't know if this is Punk who legitimately forgetting this or like a fun nod because one of his first storylines in Ring of Honor was in late 2002 where he and Colt Cabana literally had a match where the winner got plane tickets and the loser didn't. And they did a whole storyline around it. So that was like, I don't know, again, if he forgot that or if that's like a little wink to longtime fans of him being like a shit here. But yeah, making fun of someone for not having plane tickets. And that's a good point. Uh, I also note that on commentary when they were talking about the match from the second anniversary between Walters and Punk, Punk mentioned that he had a double eye infection the night of the second anniversary. And I assume that's true because that's a very specific thing to make up. And I always thought when I watched that show that he didn't look right. Like I, when I first watched it, I was like, does he have the flu? But then, you know, he seemed energetic and fine. So I was like, he probably doesn't have the flu. But um, now that makes sense. Like he did look a little off on that show. If you go back and watch it, he looked a little sick. So double eye infection. Who knew? Man, I, like it's weird because his tag partner and former best friend, Colt Cabana, in 2003, he had that show in Ring of Honor where he had to work with like the full body suit up top because he had some weird skin condition. Yeah, like weird rash. Wait, may, then, maybe like, his, wait, maybe his parents are anti-vaxxers and it was measles. <laughs> and then like less than a year later, Punk is wrestling with like the uh, – like if, if I was a wrestler, other than staff, like the two things I would w- want to – 
I would want from an opponent the least are my opponent has a weird unspecified skin condition or my opponent has a double eye infection. Like, yeah. I would just call in sick for that show probably. Like, um, like, like, like those wrestlers should have done in the first. No, I'm just kidding. um so yeah i thought this match was average like you said the 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 um reaction ended up calming down but i i thought at first when he came out just incredible got a big reaction like it's the wild thing about credible where on on this entire ring of honor run and every anytime he debuts in a market he got like a surprisingly loud reaction and then like the next time he came back the crowd was like oh you're kind of cool. Like they were excited about the idea of just incredible. But once they saw him wrestle, it was like, they kind of realized he was just incredible. Like that sounds mean, but that's just the way the reactions went. It was weird how like really over he would be. And then how it would just fade to normal pretty quickly in this case, within the span of one match. But, um, I thought this match was really middle of the road. Just Incredible's like a really capable worker. In fact, I wrote in my notes they should call him Just Incapable. But then I realized that would mean yeah, that means he's incapable. Yeah, yeah. And then I, then I realized that would actually be my wrestling name, Just Incapable, because like I'm incapable of holding a job, a decent functioning relationship. You had, you, know, to throw, like, you had to throw that shit in there, didn't you? <laughs> just to piss me off. But really, no, I really think that would be my wrestling name is just incapable. <laughs> I'm just incapable. I'm sorry. And then I put my head down. And your catchphrase but, would be, I'm going to beat you in the wrestling match that we have against each other. <laughs> that's a that's a callback to the last episode. But there was – but like he's just he's, – he's not a horrible wrestler. But this is the, not the first match in his Ring of Honor run where I've written in the notes, this is like a house show match and not in like the best way. Like it, he just – it's a kind of ba- – he's kind of basic. He's uh, – he never feels like he's blowing you away. It's just a competent wrestler. He's just – capable and um there were a couple ugly spots in this match though the first one well it was the one at the end it's like what you said which was credible takes the lung blower at the finish about as high as i've seen anyone take it like all shoulders and neck and he was talking to the ref and holding that area after the match and i don't know if that was just him selling real well or if he got legit like hurt on that it looked it looked bad like painful and then there was one other moment where in the match um Credible is throwing a super kick, but it's obviously a super kick that is supposed to be caught by Walters. And Credible throws it at like waistband level at Walters' stomach so slow and uh, it looks so bad and telegraphed that even Punk on commentary has to say like that was way too telegraphed just to kind of cover for just how slow it was. Like, and that and it's weird because Credible, the thing he has going for him is he is like a veteran that's like, as um, Cody Rhodes might say, a good hand. But that was an example of just something that's way, way like telegraphed that you wouldn't see a good hand usually do. But otherwise, just basic average match. Nothing special. Nothing nothing terrible. Nine minutes. Nothing reborn. Yeah. Uh, and that actually, it actually was pretty emblematic of like – the problems with the old ROH undercard. Maybe that's why it was there for the contrast. But but again, you have to remember this was their backup match. Originally, Credible was going to probably have some crazy brawl with Raven, and Walters was probably going to get a lengthier match against Danielson. So this was kind of this felt like the spare parts match where well these two are booked. We have to put them somewhere. There, here we go. But good point. 
Next, we have the six-man mayhem match, which is, for those who haven't been following, just basically like a scramble with six guys in singles instead of a few tag teams. And this time, it was Alex Shelley defeating Danny Daniels, Jack Evans, Jimmy Jacobs, Jimmy Ray, and Masada in 11 minutes, 30 seconds, when he made Jimmy Jacobs submit to the Border City stretch. Um, so, uh, let me just go through this. I think this show... I'm going to touch on some things I've talked about before, but I feel like this show is the perfect example of kind of the three ways Gabe and Ring of Honor tried to break in new names at this point. And this is three different kinds of matches where he did this. this they're all on this show. This is the first kind. And this is when you put them all into a big scramble type match. And I think one of the problems Ring of Honor had, and a lot of companies have this problem, is they have diverging interests. On one hand, a company like Ring of Honor has to every show has to be like a sellable show in the sense of every show is a DVD it sells for like 15 to 20 bucks plus shipping and it has to be good enough uh, as a product like entertaining enough that you buy it. it they don't have the luxury that say a TV show has where you can go okay this storyline or this match isn't too exciting or great on its own but it serves a larger purpose and people will watch it because it's for free on TV Ring of Honor every show has to reach a certain level where people go I'm going to spend money and order a DVD and watch this so in that sense doing a sh um, that's one like goal you have to have but the other goal is especially for a company like Ring of Honor that has a lot of, of roster turnover you always have to scout new talent and then develop them for your crowd and I feel like those two things work against each other because, in a sense, throwing a bunch of guys that are still trying to make a name in Ring of Honor and are new to the company, in the sense of just trying to put them out there in a match where the crowd won't shit on it because there's too many new faces or because maybe if you pick the wrong wrestler and it turns out they're not a good fit for the company. Like, this is a match where it's kind of hard to screw up. It's just six – if you've seen a scramble, you've seen this match. It's six guys, guys going quick in, quick out. Lots of big high spots and signature moves, you know, no story. It's just action, action, action. But the problem is if you're trying to find out like, what are these guys characters? Are they um, good at having like a match with like intangibles, like psychology and selling, you know, how good are they in a one-in-one -one setting? Can we get over one guy to this crowd? It's like everyone just kind of fades into one large jumble of high spots and no one really stands out. And so I thought this was like an above average, nothing. It's like, I've seen better scramble type matches. It was enjoyable, but my main takeaway was just, it was one of those things where it's good in terms of it, it's, it gives you a nice dose of just wild action on the card. But if you're actually trying to find out who these wrestlers are or make an impression on the fans, I don't think it really does that job at all. Um, yeah, I like this a lot more than you did. Um, I thought this was definitely the, I mean, of the three, the best six-man mayhem match they've had so far, like, by a large margin. Um, for, first of all, I guess one way that I might disagree with you is there really, there was only one wrestler actually debuting in this match, which was Danny Daniels, right? And um, everyone else had been on the shows a number of times already. Um, Alex Shelley, Jimmy Jake, yeah, obviously all the, all the other guys. Um, but but other, other than Jimmy Rave, I don't think anyone's really, like, can feel safe about their position in the company yet. Like they're going to get, they're going to get pushes, but other than Jimmy rave, no one's really had like a storyline yet or anything significant. Definitely true. Um, but at the same time, I did think that like certain guys stood out. I, I thought that 
Shelley in particular uh, got a chance to stand out. Evans also. Evans always stands out just because of the stuff that he can do. Um, the way they started this match was a little bit different um, in that they basically started with three singles matches, right? Like it started with, um, let's say I kind of wrote down the pairings here. So it started with Shelly against, um, Shelly against Rave. Um, no, it wasn't Shelly against Rave. Oh, embarrassing that I wrote that. Oh yeah. Okay. So it was, yeah, Shelly against Rave, Daniels against Jacobs and Masada against Evans. And they each had like a decent amount of time to work with each other one-on-one before it sort of all broke down. And Shelly got to do all of his wacky submissions and they made a lot of note of that. And even at one point, I thought it was pretty funny on commentary. Gabe was like, Alex Shelly does all these creative submissions. And Punk is like, yeah, creative. If you've never seen Lucha before, um, I thought that was a good move. Um, I thought Danny Daniels did a pretty insane uh, electric chair on on uh, Jimmy Jacobs. Um, the only uh, the the only dive before the main event tonight, which Gabe notes later, was uh, Jack Evans. He hit like a twisting like springboard onto the onto the floor. Um, Shelley ended up winning with the Border City stretch on Jacobs, but I thought he really did stand out just because his offense looked so good. And you know everyone loves Evans and and. Um, Jacob stood out in the sense because he was so over. Like, the crowd just loved his Huss stuff. Like, yeah, none of them actually have characters at this point, but I, I would disagree with the idea that nobody could really stand out. I would say the guys who stood out the least were um, Daniels and uh, Masada. I mean, I guess Rave, too, to, a, to an extent. I guess that's why they go for the repackaging of Rave. But I thought this was good. Like, I, I thought this was a just solid, good scramble-style match. Um, yeah, we'll have to maybe just agree to disagree a little on that, but I, I, I just want to reinforce, I did enjoy the match as a match and obviously like, it's not like this match impeded anybody's, like, um, career. I mean, a lot of these guys in this match become significant ring of honor players. It, it's just, I feel like these matches, you don't learn, I, you don't learn as much from these matches about a new piece of talent as you do if you just give them like 10 minutes in a one-on-one match. But again, it's kind of a safer bet. I feel like for the, for structuring a show to give them this kind of match. But the only other thing I I thought that I noticed was I thought the ending was a little weird. It was kind of anticlimactic where, um, Jacobs takes that huge electric chair driver from, uh, Danny Daniels. The pinfall attempt gets broken up by Jack Evans. And then Evans right after that does a dive to the floor on some people. And then Shelly basically like re-enters the ring from the other side, like sees that Jacobs is down and everyone else is like out on the outside and puts on the border city stretching kits. The win. it's like, he basically like stumbled into the ring. It was like, Oh, I could win this match right now. But that, like, but, but that was the point though, right? Cause after in the match, he kind of cuts like a cocky heel promo on Jacobs. And he's like, you're not going to disappoint me when we team up tomorrow. Are you like, it was a heel move. And I thought that was kind of the, I thought that was the point. See, I, I kind of separate. I thought the promo was kind of its own thing. I didn't know. I didn't really think of the finish as playing into like the heel tease to come, but now that you say that, you could, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and and also, um, I one thing I like about this match is that it didn't feature a dive train. Like they, it's it was like it was a different kind of match, but they still managed to keep it moving fast. Yeah, it still it still felt like a scramble match, and, and um, but with yeah, with because they're saving all the dives for a segment at the very end of the show, it kind of had that limiting it, but it still felt just 
you know, I, you didn't really miss it, like you, like you were saying. So that that's I think yeah, a testament to the guys in the match. Um, also on commentary, a couple other notes actually I want to mention. First, Gabe keeps saying at least probably three times during this match that Six Man Mayhem is the hottest new match in wrestling. It's just a scramble with singles guys instead of a tag team. It's the same match. It's like it's very it's, like, not, it's very not the hottest match. Also, this was the first one that I would actually call good. So this is literally like Taco Bell, where you know people have made so many cliche jokes about, but like how everything on the menu is the same four ingredients put in a different composition. It's like Six Man Mayhem is really just something you've been doing for over a year. It's just singles instead of tag, but. I, I realize you got to put stuff over. And then the other thing, Matt, am I crazy or it was CM Punk outright eating a meal while he recorded commentary during some of these matches? <laughs> I, I didn't, sworn, I did not notice. <laughs> I, I could have sworn there was multiple times I heard him chewing. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this. Uh, um, anyway, up next after the match, we follow Alex Shelley back through the curtain where he finds Jimmy Jacobs laying on the floor, recovering from the match. Shelly tells Jacobs there's no shame in losing to him. He has talent on loan from God. Shelly says they have a big tag team match tomorrow, and he wants to make sure Jimmy won't let him down. He wouldn't have to cut some excess baggage. They shake hands, and then Jimmy husses Alex behind his back, which Alex like is like, what did you say? And then I just wrote tension, huss-related tension. Like, like it was like he could... It was like Huss was a language that Jimmy Jacobs speaks where Huss can mean eight different things and Alex Shelley speaks it because he like took the Huss as a personal affront, which I thought was cute. Yeah, that, um, they, they have a good dynamic. So yeah, that's the first real tease I think we're getting that Shelley's going to go heel, which we'll explore in a couple sh- few shows. And next up, though, we have B.J. Whitmer defeating Colt Cabana via pinfall in 13 minutes, one second, after a wrist clutch exploder off the second turnbuckle. Um, before we throw to you with the match, Steamboat's the guest ref for this match. Uh, Colt comes out with a Karate Kid-style headband and a Cabbage Patch doll, along with Punk at his side, mocking you know the classic Steamboat entrance with his baby son. Um, before the match starts, Punk gets on the mic. He says he and Colt are the greatest tag team in wrestling, and he gets cheers from the crowd until he says Chicago is much superior to St. Paul, which turns the crowd instantly against Punk. Punk says Christopher Daniels is gone, and it doesn't matter what you read, it's because of Punk. So that is, I guess, maybe a little bit of allusion to the Rob Feinstein stuff. Uh, before the match even starts, then Punk pulls Steamboat out of the ring and attacks him, screaming that this is for Jersey. And then until he, Punk gets sent to the back, the match ends up starting with a standard ref as Steamboat recovers and runs to the back to chase Punk. So the reaction that, to that was weird because I thought the crowd, the crowd, I figured would boo like crazy, and they just seemed kind of confused when Punk took out Steamboat. I was kind of surprised that it didn't get a bigger reaction. It's a weird up and down because they were really in like ready to cheer Punk, who has wrestled a bunch in the Midwest until he did he shit on St. Paul. And then so I wonder if they kind of at that point started to not wonder even what to think because they wanted to cheer, but then were prompted to boo. But anyway, what did you think about the match itself that we got that did not involve either of those guys? It was just BJ versus Colt. I thought it was kind of hard to pay attention to because there was so much going on on commentary. Yeah. Like like Punk re- refer- returns to the booth and he's like maniacally laughing and Gabe's like telling him to shut up. And they're just arguing a lot. Um, in the meantime, um, 
They're, uh, uh, Cabana and Whitmer have basically a brawl on the floor. That's like the majority of the match. Like they, they whip each other into guardrails. Uh, Whitmer throws Cabana onto a row of chairs. Um, it's, um, it's a very, it's a regular Shane versus the Miz that they got going on <laughs> here. Um, but, um, they, you know, it was one thing that I appreciated now that you mentioned the lighting is that when they were brawling in the crowd, they actually turned the house lights on. And, like, that solves a big problem that they had been having when they go into, like, even onto the floor, which is, like, that it just gets really dark and that spotlight can't catch up. So they just turn all the lights on, and that helped a lot. Yeah. Um, then once they got back to the ring, they just started doing roll-ups, which I was like, really? Like, after all that, you're just going to do some roll-ups? But then they, they go into some high-impact high moves. Um, Cabana goes for the double knees, but Whitmer throws Cabana, like, over his head onto the turnbuckle. And then uh, he hits a top rope rich cl- uh, wrist clutch out of nowhere, I would say, for the win. So um, I guess the match was something different. I don't think it was bad. I thought it was not the focus of the segment, at least on the DVD. Like, the match was not the main thing you were paying attention to because of all the shenanigans on commentary. Um, but they, they do sort of sell after the match that Cabana, like, hurt his shoulder. But you don't really see much selling of that on camera. Um, but it was a... Um, but I don't know. It was it was a decent brawl, I guess. It was just I wasn't really paying that much of attention to it because there was so much on camera. I, I, I mean, agree. on commentary. I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I I think this match it got this was an example. I know we were talking before recording the show where you mentioned that you thought this was like Punk's best show so far on commentary, and there were matches I really liked, but there were there was matches like this where I feel like his role kind of took away from a match because I don't blame Punk for being the heel and reacting how his character should to matches like this. But at the same time, like you said, it did completely like take the focus away from this match because the whole match Punk is just cackling and arguing with Gabe and, you know, talking about, you know, his feud and, and it's hard to focus on the match when so much of when Punk is doing so much on commentary and, my other big takeaway from this match, I thought this match was, like a lot of these undercard matches lately, a little above average, like two and three quarters star. Again, like there's so many undercard matches lately I would give that rating to. And I did like that they actually brawled with some intensity on the outside because this match and the last one they had on the last show, which was uh, Colt and Ace Steel versus Moth and Whitmer, I do appreciate that they're at least trying to wrestle these matches in this feud like there is hatred. They're trying to wrestle them a little different. But going to what you said, it was like a tale of two matches because the start of the match and the end of the match were both wrestled in the ring and were completely like standard, like you'd expect any Colt versus BJ Whitmer match to look. And then in the middle, you did have this wilder brawl that felt more unique and more like they actually did hate each other. Like I think BJ took an ugly looking chair shot to the head. Um, Colt allows himself, gets whipped into a big row of chairs and takes a big wipeout, which is the one, one problem with this match, which is one of the most obvious spot calls I've seen on a ring of honor show so far, where you can outright see the cameras right in his face, Colt telling BJ reverse this. And then magically the Irish whip gets reversed and Colt takes a big spill into some chairs. But yeah, it did feel like I would have liked if maybe the whole match was as intense as the crowd brawling part because other because it kind of just goes back to normal once they get into the ring. But it was fine, just like you said. It was it was kind of hard to pay attention to. Yep, I don't really have much more to say, but I agree. 
Uh, yeah, and also the the match was Gabe said on commentary the code of honor was thrown out for this match because this feud is so out of control. And one thing I did notice on commentary, Gabe says he, I almost felt bad for, B, for for almost felt bad when BJ Whitmer took out Lucy, but now I think you deserve it, Punk, for what after what you've done. And I just was like, so CM Punk deserves a female friend of his to get like brutally attacked and driven out of wrestling. Like it was one of those. And it was also weird. Cause then later in the match during one of the crowd rolling parts, BJ high fives a fan. And I just felt like it's weird how in a few shows, BJ's gone from like evil, like mysterious person that nearly killed a woman to like, now he's kind of a face, I guess. Like, I, I don't know. It's just yeah, yeah. Things. I guess the prophecy are kind of the de facto faces now. Like Punk is certainly trying to be the heel on this show, so I guess that yeah, that makes BJ and Moff the faces. Punk doesn't uh, fully turn face until the summer, except for the show in Chicago that we're about to watch. So yeah, that's that's exactly true. They are the faces <laughs> in the feud until then. We're at intermission at this point with Dave Prezak backstage, he, and uh, he introduces himself as the Ring of Honor Midwest correspondent. He's with Alex Shelley. Prezak says they've received word that Ricky Steamboat is okay, but then he throws to Shelley. And then Alex gives a quick, short, little cocky promo saying that he's the best of the six guys in his match tonight. And he says, due to recent events, the deck in Ring of Honor has been shuffled. And that on the show that takes place on May 22nd, it will be his time, which, of course, that show would turn out to be Generation Next, the starting of that uh, group that he leads. So. And that was the illusion that I was referring to. Due to recent events, the deck will have to be shuffled. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there have been a couple mentions on this show. You know, like I said on the last match with Punk on commentary saying, you know, doesn't matter what you've heard, I'm the reason Daniels isn't in Ring of Honor anymore. Like, they're kind of talking about some of the real news, but they're they're just, for obvious reasons, not going there. Um, and that brings us to the first match after intermission, it, the do-or-die match. Matt Seidel, escorted to the ring by Daisy Hayes, defeats Delirious via pinfall in six minutes, 24 seconds, when he does a rotating belly-to-belly superplex. It was basically like a Spanish fly, but he wasn't like too delirious his side. He was more just right in front of him in the belly-to-belly position. So this is um, Matt Seidel's debut at Ring of Honor, Delirious's debut, Daisy Hayes' debut. And it's pretty crazy because, Matt, before I talk about the match, if you had told me one of these two guys is going to be a huge – one of the most important people in Ring of Honor history in the future, I'd be like, wow, Matt Sa- Seidel becomes a big star. I guess I can see it. He's good-looking. He's a good wrestler. And, were, <laughs> and then if you told me Delirious, I'd be like, well, that seems crazy, but I guess that gimmick could catch on in a weird way. And you told me, no, it's going to be Delirious is going to book Ring of Honor for years and years and years, like when they're on TV. I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, What? And yeah, this is so in a way, this is a very historic match in Ring of Honor history. Um, it is. I didn't realize it was even coming. I had forgotten that these guys debuted on this show. So this goes into my second of the three ways Ring of Honor would introduce new guys. And this is way two. If the six man man was way, way one, which is the crazy multi man spot this. This is take two guys that know each other well, but have never wrestled here and give them four to six minutes. And it's it, it's a lot like my rationale, of my talk about the first kind of match, which is it's the best thing if you're trying to produce a good show because that way if the fans shit on it because they don't know the guys or because these guys turn out to be nervous or not a good fit for the company, 
it's not going to ruin the DVD. It's not going to take up much time. It's going to be easily forgotten. But at the same time, there's only so much you can do in four to six minutes. You, I feel like most of these matches all come out the same way, which is they look, they end up being wrestled. Like it's the wrestlers demo reel done live. Like it's just them doing all their craziest moves and coolest sequences in, in the short amount of time. You don't see a lot of selling or character work or you, all you get to see is, Oh, we can do cool moves. Now, all that being said, I felt like this match didn't quite do that. Like I felt like the first few minutes, they actually wrestled it a bit slower. They did more mat work than you'd expect for a six minute match. But then I also felt like it, it was not bad, but it also didn't leave an impression because they had so little, if they had like 10 or 12 minutes, you could throw away two or three minutes working on the mat and then build the bigger stuff here. That's like half the match. But then in the last, it was only in the last minute where I felt like Matt Seidel started to show off like he could do some really cool flying stuff where you really got an idea of, oh, Matt Seidel is this really talented athletic flyer. And then Delirious, for his for his part, he got to show a bit of his babbling, crazy monster. Gabe makes his first reference to Delirious wears the mask because he's got a lizard face underneath it, which is something Gabe would ref- reference on commentary many times throughout the years. But it was not a bad match. It, it was okay. But it, it, it's like, like I said with the other match, it's it's not, you don't get a full picture of what these guys can do or who they are as talents. This isn't a match that's going to like cement your job in Ring of Honor probably long term. First of all, the show is called Through the Years, not Throughout the Years. But, um, <laughs> but, but that's th- our post game show, our extra show <laughs> that talks about the podcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I was surprised by how little an impression these guys made in this match. You know, knowing how talented they are, you know, the, uh, Seidel's last match in ROH um, before becoming Evan Bourne was also against Delirious, and obviously they worked a lot of times in other promotions too. Um, but yeah, this match, of all like the traveling like matches of two guys that are sort of a, a package deal, this was probably the weakest of all the ones that ROH has done in the sense of just, yeah, they didn't do much. Um, it was fine, but they didn't do much. Um, like like you said, like Seidel, he went for the shooting star press and he landed on his feet. He hit the moonsault belly to belly for the win. But that was really it as far as anything particularly memorable. Um, I did enjoy Punk saying that Matt Seidel's got a nice little compact body there. Then he had to <laughs> th- then he had to add in, don't take that the wrong way. And I'm like, I was taking it the right way for the record. But um, but yeah, not not nothing nothing to write home about here. But they were on the show, so I guess that makes it kind of reborn. And I did feel like this was another match where what I said on a previous match where CM Punk's commentary did kind of detract because Punk is at this point. He joins the commentary late. He's selling that he's like checking on Colt's injury status, that he's got injured shoulders backstage because Punk is acting like it's live commentary, you know, and Punk's just ranting about things. And he barely talks about the guys in this match, which is, you know, for these two guys, this is a big match to try and make an impression in Ring of Honor. But like I said in the last match, I can't blame Punk for doing what works for his character, but it just, it did, I did feel like it stole focus away from two guys. But I say all these criticisms and it didn't really hurt these, either of these guys' career at all. I mean, Dave Meltzer writes in the observer, Matt Seidel beat delirious in a match of guys from gateway championship wrestling in St. Louis. Both have worked matches for explosion and TNA. Uh, this was their tryout match and they were immediately asked if they wanted to work the next night. So obviously it impressed Gabe enough to get them bookings the next night. 
Um, Gabe said this was a do or die match. And I thought it was interesting the way Gabe talked about do or die matches, which are basically their Ring of Honor's name for tryout matches. He's, Gabe says, if you win, or more importantly, if you look impressive, you will get more opportunities in Ring of Honor. I thought that was interesting that he was outright saying that looking good was more important than winning. Because that's almost breaking like kayfabe when you think about it. But... Um, the other thing I thought was kind of adorable was less than a minute into the match on commentary, Gabe goes, all we've seen so far about a minute into this match is basic grappling. And Gabe says something like, but so far, both guys are looking pretty good. And it's like, we've barely seen anything but like the most basic counter wrestling. But clearly Gabe knew where these guys were going and liked them. So he was going to put them over. But in character, if Gabe's supposed to be doing live commentary, the idea that like one minute in to this match that he was like, these guys are doing pretty good. It's like, I've seen a lot of matches start out this could, like most wrestling matches. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, maybe he was just saying like their basic wrestling was really good because, hey, I couldn't do it, so you never know. I mean, it was, it was solid. I mean, there wasn't anything bad to it, but, uh, and that brings us to the non-title tag team match, the champions Briscoe's not putting the titles on the line when they defeated the debuting Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero in 18 minutes, two seconds, when Jay pinned Ricky Reyes after a spike Jay driller. Matt, um, Dave Meltzer got a live report or, or whatever report Dave got. Dave wrote, the show stealer on this show was said to be the Briscoes keeping the tag titles over the Havana Pitbulls, which was reported to be the best match of the entire weekend. Matt, do you agree? Um, well, I got to wait till the next show. Yeah, um, un- yeah, that's unfair. Yeah, I'm sorry. But um, I forgive you, Trevor. Um, but um, I think I like this match. It was weird, though. Like, it was different. Um, it was like it had this real intensity to it. And it flowed very differently than a lot of tag matches. And the crowd was quiet at the beginning. But they got really into it at the end. And I think that's a good sign. Um, one thing that kept throwing me off um, was that no team really ever got momentum for a long time. Like, I was like, all right, this is when the, the Pitbulls are going to get really take over and get the heat for a while. Oh, okay, I guess not. Oh, maybe the Briscoes are going to take over and get the heat for a while. Oh, no, I guess not. It kept going back and forth and back and forth. But there was this intensity. Like, they were, like, early in the match, they were, like, spitting at each other. And Rocky was like, I fucking hate St. Paul. And, like, they were, like, having, like like, slap fights and kicks and, like, everything looked stiff. And the commentary was really putting over how intense everything was um especially like rocky slaps and kicks like they they really like made things feel like a real fight at one point like they did it like almost like a demolition style like over the knee move but instead of like an elbow mark does it did a double stomp um which i thought was really cool um um you know uh ultimately in the end uh, they hit the spike j driller uh, after rocky broke up the uh the doomsday device and that got the briscoes the win um, I thought that like the intensity was really good. I was thrown off a little bit by the pacing of the match. It was just kind of something different to me that maybe not fully invest in the action as much as I would have liked to, but I, I appreciated that it was different and I thought that it was cool. Like I thought they, they worked it in a really cool way. I really am not like, I'm not saying they did anything wrong. It was just different. And I, but they definitely got the crowd. I like some of the commentary stuff like, um, 
for one thing, I like that how Punk uh, actually focused on the match, and I think yeah. he definitely added a lot to it. Um, I also like this exchange where uh, Punk says he has nothing to worry about with Brian Danielson, and Gabe was like, please, he's one of the best in the world. And Punk was like, and I'm the best in the world. And I'm like, hmm, somebody should make that a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I, I, think, I think I like this match a lot. I just... It took me a while to figure that out. I guess is how I would say it. Uh, see, I, I, I was disappointed by this match. I thought it was like three stars, three and a quarter. Like, I maybe it's because I, I was disappointed to this when I first watched it because it was. I think this was my first Havana Pitbulls match ever, and I had heard a lot of hype because they were starting to get some buzz on the indies. And, um, but I agree with a lot of what you say. I, I feel like. The, the Pitbulls, they brought a lot of intensity that you didn't see in a lot of the other matches on this show, and they bring like a stiffness that was that a lot of the other wrestlers on the show don't have. There, there's a certain like credibility and, and grittiness to the way they work a match that most wrestlers on the scene didn't have at this point. Even the way they do submissions, where a lot of guys they're doing it in more the pro wrestling way, where you're like grabbing something and really working the whole theatrically where they're more grabbing like arm bars out of nowhere, doing that more like MMA approach, like trying to get a a flash submission out of nowhere. But on the other hand, I felt like the first half of this match was kind of, I thought for 18 minutes, they didn't do enough with the time. Like 18 minutes is a lot of time for a match, especially for a guy's getting to debut. And the first half I felt like was just them kind of filling time. And, and then right around the middle of the match, uh, the Briscoes and, and the Pitbulls, I think that's when they got get into the shoving match and spitting or whatever and start really yelling. And from that point, there's like an extra level of intensity in the match that I think really perks it up and makes it like takes it to a new level. But even then, like it kind of finishes off in your standard – like, oh, this is a uh, bigger moves at the end. But I just and I did think, like you said, the crowd was more quiet for this than some of the other matches. But this is the third and final way Ring of Honor, I, I feel like, debuts new teams. And I feel like this is the best way, actually, which is they're taking a, a new team and or a new act and they're putting them up against a really over, really talented, established act. And they're giving them a bunch of time. And ironically, it, I, I actually don't think the match was that great, but yet I still think in general, this is the best way to push new guys. It's a bigger risk because if the match turns out to be bad, you know, it's a, you've used up two really talented wrestlers that could have been used somewhere else. And you've used up a bunch of time on the show, but like it's what I always remember is the story of Kevin Steen or Kevin Owens now gives where when he first was in ring of honor, him and El Generico they kind of gave them matches more like the other two types of of uh, break-in matches I described earlier in the show, and he never got over, and they stopped booking them. And then the second time they brought them in, Gabe said, your first match back, you're wrestling the Briscoes, we're giving you a bunch of time, go nuts, do whatever you want. And right, but by the time that match was over, Gabe was already like, we're booking you on every show now. And I feel like that's the kind of opportunity, I mean, it's the exact opportunity the Pitbulls get, they get nearly 20 minutes against the Briscoes, so... I do think in general, this is the way to book guys when you want to break in, even if this match I thought was just, it was solid. It was still probably the best match on the show so far, but I wouldn't say by a huge margin in my opinion, even though you probably disagree. 
Yeah, I uh, I do, but I think you make good points all around. But uh, and I also just want to mention the commentary. I think what you said about this is this is one of I think Gabe and Punk's best performances. I think they did a really good job of um, bringing up background to the Pitbulls. Um, Gabe says this is non-title because they want all the focus to be on the tag title match the next night. But this is a match that like the tape traders and the hardcore fans really wanted, which I thought was a good way of justifying it. Uh, Gabe also said that Ring of Honor had been trying to bring in the Pitbulls for quite some time, but were finally able to do it. And then Punk actually brings a nice little bit of background where he says uh, the Pitbulls are his friends. And they also share a trainer, Kevin Quinn, who was one of the guys who trained Punk along with uh, Ace Steel. And uh, so I, I thought that was a nice little bit of background work. And one other thing I really liked about the booking of this match is this is something Gabe's done in the past with uh, Punk and Joe in 2003. But this is a non-title match where the champions win. And I really like that because in so many promotions, if you see a non-title match, you know instantly the challenger is winning. And I like that Gabe is actually one of the rare bookers who will throw in a non-title match where the champs win. Like, I really like that because then it makes you – you can't take any non-title match for granted. So I appreciate this is the second year in a row where he's throwing you a prominent non-title match and let the champ win. Yeah, anything that increases unpredictability is – as long as it's logical, I'd say, is a good thing. And I don't think it hurt the – it it didn't hurt the Pitbulls at all to lose this match. Like, there's no shame in your debut to lose to the tag team champions in 18 minutes. Like, not at all. So – that takes us to the semi-main event. Brian Danielson defeated CM Punk via submission in 26 minutes, one second, with an abdominal stretch. Um, I like this match quite a bit. It was my favorite match on the show so far. I thought it was, uh, like, it's hard for me, like, my good scale of match rating is failing me. I would say it's like three and a quarter, three and three quarter to four star match, I would say. I thought the interesting thing when I watched this match is, um is that it felt like a throwback to a different era of indie wrestling. Because I feel like so many indie matches nowadays, we're living in the PWG era where it's like every match is guys going out there with almost no restrictions and is trying to steal the show. And so many matches like nowadays, wrestlers brag about like how much planning they put into a match. Like you'll hear like the young bucks talk about how much, yeah, that great match we had, we planned so much of it out where this generation of wrestlers back then, were, would uh, there would be guys like Samoa Joe who interviews would pla- would brag about how little plan they did. Like he would brag like that match I had with Brian Danielson, we literally didn't plan over one spot. We called it all in the ring. And this match felt like two guys making it up all in the ring. And it also felt like they weren't trying to steal the show, but they were trying to have a very good match. And it, it's such a throwback in the sense of so many little things. Like um, I wrote them down. The pace is kind of a medium tempo where there's m- submissions all throughout the match, but there's never like the submission part of the match and the big spot part of the match. It's like you'll get some submission work, then you'll get some spots on their feet, then you'll get some submission work. It's like a nice little tempo. And then on top of that, 
They never it never turns into like a big near fall focus match at the end. It has stuff like knuckle locks and and standard collar collar and elbow tie ups. There's like a double ten count spot. There's an early instance of Ray, of Danielson doing his airplane airplane spin. There's even I mean Matt Matt the match ends with an abdominal stretch getting the win. Like so in a way I can see some people saying this is disappointing, but I enjoyed it as like a throwback. I felt kind of like it's almost like an eighties WWF match meets like an early two thousands indie match. What did you think about it? I thought it was really good. Um, also, um, I am kind of mixed about the early portion of the match when there was a lot of stuff between punk and steamboat, because basically this was like a continuation of a show long angle. So punk took out steamboat in the cabana match. So steamboat shows up and it's like, Hey, I'm here to be a referee. So I'm going to be a referee for this match. And then, uh, and then the crowd obviously loves that. And then, um, uh, steamboat calls punk punk face a couple times on, um, on, uh, the mic, which gets the crowd to chant punk face at him. I believe that was the only time anyone's ever called him that. Um, and I think that's kind of a weird thing to say to him, but Hey, <laughs> he got the crowd to chant. He also said at one point to punk, this referee is going to be all over your ass tonight, which um, unfortunately we didn't we didn't get to see it. I uh, I was hoping he was it was false advertising as far as I'm concerned. But um, but then like Steamboat would actually get himself involved in the match itself, like he um, like when he admonishes Punk, he like starts grabbing him by the head, and then at one point like Punk makes this big deal about how Danielson like uh, pulled his hair and. Steamboat's like, oh, did he pull his hair? Did he pull his hair? And then Steamboat's like, this is how you pull hair. And then Steamboat just pulls Punk's hair. And I'm like, hey, that's just not fair. That is not a fair way to be a referee. It's not following the code of honor. But, um, you know, the crowd loved it. And then they eventually settled into a, um, into a normal match. And it went, you know, it went long. And they did a lot of stuff. Um, at one point, Steamboat tried to fast count him. And at one point, Punk even told Steamboat that he has till five. So he's doing all of Danielson's stuff in this show. Um, <laughs> CM Punk is the original Brian Danielson, it turns out. Like, yeah. people get on CM Punk for ripping people off. It turns out Brian Danielson's entire act is CM Punk from this show, apparently. Right, and this, I would say, is a new era for Danielson as well. Like, he's sort of, like, doing this whole back-to-basics thing. Like he, 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 This is the first show that we see him with that buzz cut that he has for a few years. He has very plain trunks. I think he's kind of dropped muscle mass also, but it feels like intentionally, like he's training differently, which I think if I remember from his uh, his book, he even says, like he's into different type of training. Because, you know, when he was when he was first in ROH, he was pretty jacked, and now he's not. Like he's he's in very good shape, but he's like, he does, he's he's a little bit slimmer than he, uh, than he was earlier in his ROH career. And he's just doing this like, you know, kind of like slow grinding thing, you know, not as many of the big moves and stuff like that as we've as we've said. But they do some big stuff like where Danielson goes for the cattle mutilation and Punk almost like does an unprettier to get out. And I love this. This is of all the things where I'm like, wow, this really happened. Here's my favorite. So they're teasing a superplex and Punk is on the top rope. He's going for the superplex and... When uh, Danielson is blocking it, the crowd chants yes. And when Punk is about to go for it, they chant no. And it's like, yes, no, yes, no. And eventually the the no's drop out for a few seconds. And the chant that you get supporting Brian Danielson is just yes, 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 yes. Isn't that fucking amazing? It's insane that all that stuff happens on the same show. Like, like, honestly... 
you know, I think one of our, we're huge Brian Danielson fans here at Through the Years. He's one of our favorite, if not our favorite wrestler. I, I think he'd be a dream interview, but I think now if I only had one question to ask Danielson, it wouldn't even be a question. I would just show him that clip and try and blow his mind. Like, do you remember this? Like, there's no, there's, you, there's no way he could remember that. Yeah. Like it, it, this, this to me is like the biggest surprise since we found out that Nigel McGuinness did the crazy Ramses head into the ring post spot on a show bef- way before the unified one with Danielson, like that there was an actual yes chant for Brian Danielson in 2004. Like it's crazy. It's, it, it's, it's fucking crazy, Matt. Hello? Uh, yeah, it, it's, I'm sorry about that. Um, it was, it is really crazy. And, but you watched this match. It was definitely there. It was only for a few seconds, but it was there. Maybe all the fans were time travelers. I don't, I don't know. That, that'd be pretty wild. Yeah, but, it's like 12 Monkeys where someone went back to start the Yes Chan and then so they've always been the ones who started the Yes Chan. Oh, man. Uh, now you've blown my mind that I won't be able to sleep tonight. But going back yeah. to the match. Um, that's if, right. if you zoom in deep in the crowd, you can just see me with like a Hawaiian shirt screaming, you have to chant this. It's going to save his career one day. And they're like dragging me away into a vault or something. <laughs> that <laughs> happened. Also, now I like that he kept doing the abdominal stretch and he would do this seated abdominal stretch. And I like that the match ended that way. And this is also a new thing for Danielson where he's like winning matches in a few different ways. Um, I really love this era of Brian Danielson. This is the first match of it. And uh, yeah, this was, this was a real highlight. I, um, I, I am not sure if Steamboat added or detracted, but I think it was worth it either way for the angle that was um, going to happen. So... Yeah, that's a great point about Danielson, where this is one of the first examples in Ring of Honor that we get of something I love about Danielson, which is he doesn't stand with the pat hand. Like, I think he gets bored easily. And every few months, he's always adding a move or taking away a move or changing his look. And, like, who else would have the the balls to, like, go, I'm going to win a 26-minute match, a semi-main event, with an abdominal stretch submission? Like, Yeah, I mean, it, first of all, first of all, it's a very charismatic thing to do, and I think if you showed this to any newsletter writer in 2004, they would say, this guy has a ton of star potential. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. I'm saving that for the end, because that's that's the real main event of the show. Is um, Wade Keller, I guess we should note, Wade Keller is from, obviously, the Minnesota area, and he was live at this show. He had some backstage notes. He would, you At times during the show, you can see him at ringside taking photos, and... Uh, Let's just say at the end of the show, we have some pretty interesting comments from the Torch crew. It's like, it's one of those, like, well, I, I just to preview it, it's one of those things that, like, if you made up that quote, you would say, like, it's too on the nose in terms of how wrong it is. Like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the post-match, it was cool. But uh, the other thing I, I want to say, you, I am really on the fence about Steamboat's role in this match, and so it's interesting that you're kind of on starting to lean towards one end of it because you're kind of pushing me to that direction too, which is – so in one hand, I like the way they did this because Steamboat in this match, he's playing like like all the spots Matt said. Like he's – in those spots, he's basically to me, he's trying to play the good guy who's being the ref. But, like, Punk is fucked with him, and if Punk fucks with him even a little bit, like, says something smart to him, this time he's going to fuck with him back. Unlike the last show where it felt like he was trying to play it straight no matter what, this time it feels like, 
or if you screw with me, like there's one point in this match even where Gabe points out, like after one sequence where Punk like yells at him, the very next near fall Danielson gets on Punk, Steamboat tries to do a fast count on Punk, which you would think the, that should in some ways, and part of me feels like, like, like you were kind of hinting at, which is, He's kind of detracting for the match. He's being almost a little bit heelish. Like the Steamboat as the face shouldn't be costing Punk stuff. But I did feel like they did just enough to try to justify that like Steamboat's only doing this because Punk keeps fucking with him. Like Punk attacked him earlier in the show. Like, yeah, yeah. Punk tried, to, Punk tried to like take him out. Yeah. So, 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 and I, I, I do think they went the extra mile with when Steamboat comes for this match like you described at the start of the match where he asks the fans and Danielson and Paul Turner, like, can I ref this match? And his whole thing is, I was booked to ref a match because of Punk, I couldn't. I still want to ref a match. Am I allowed to ref this match? Like, I feel like that at least gave some justification where it wasn't just Steamboat being like, I want to ref Punk's match so I can fuck him over. It was more like, hey, I, 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 was, I was booked to ref a match. I, I still only have, I have two shots left to ref a match. Can I do this? So for me, it was on the border of detracting and not detracting. Um, Dave Meltzer wrote about this match that they really teased the idea of a Punk versus Steamboat match down the line. At this point, there are no plans of this happening. The G- G- Gabe made sure to say on commentary, Steamboat's never going to wrestle for ROH. Yeah, yeah, that, that was another interesting thing too, where it felt like that was kind of hinted in the newsletters, but there, this must he must have recorded the commentary when it became very apparent because yeah, Gabe very clearly makes it like just flat out says like he's never going to wrestle here. But um, Dave writes at this point, there are no plans of this match happening. The promotion would love to have steamboat do one match, but steamboat has said he doesn't want to be one of those guys who comes out of retirement after so many years and can't do what he once could. So I thought that was an interesting quote because steamboat would come out of retirement for WWE and he would actually like, be real like still famously like people would say oh he's still like 80 percent what he used to be or something like that like he actually had one of the better kind of injured vet comeback matches i think like performances so it's interesting at this point that he's still being like "Eh, i can't do that obviously maybe money has a factor in that too you know i'm sure if you give him like wwe style payoff money maybe all of a sudden you start worrying a little less about how you look but i don't know um, and other than that, yeah, we don't have anything else to talk about in this match other than the post-match, which is after the match, Danielson and Punk shake hands and Brian leaves. Steamboat tries to leave as well, but Punk stops him multiple times. Uh, they get into a big argument in the center of the ring when Colt Cabana, who we had been told earlier on commentary, had an injured shoulder and was in the hospital. He sneaks behind Steamboat. The crowd then does a loud chant of look behind you, which makes Steamboat look stupid because he has to like ignore it for the spot to work. Um, Colt then attacks him from behind. Ricky tries to fire back with chops, but he gets stopped by the two-on-one disadvantage. Punk punches him and chops Steamboat as Colt holds Steamboat's arms back. Eventually, after maybe a little bit too long for my taste, somebody finally runs in to save the respected legend. And in in this case, it's the Briscoes. And they chase the Second City Saints out of the ring. Yeah, Um, I, I I was thinking, like, where is Brian Danielson right now? Yeah, like this was one of those things people complain about Raw for, which is where... Like, I know Brian Alvarez and his old reviews would always go into, like, I guess this babyface has no friends when, like, some babyface gets beaten down for, like, five minutes. And it wasn't that bad, but it was just starting to border on, like, you would think somebody would try and help Ricky Steamboat at this point. 
Yeah, I mean the guy who was just there for one. Yeah, exactly. And then that finally brings us to the main event match of the show, Ring of Honor World Title Match. Samoa Joe successfully defends the title, and he defeats Homicide by disqualification in 18 minutes, 30 seconds, when Homicide attacked the ref, and then a little while after that, I think that caused the DQ, but then if that didn't, well, the lights go out, and then Homicide throws a dang fireball at Samoa Joe. Um, Matt, we've seen a few Samoa Joe Homicide matches in Ring of Honor, and we're going to see a few more. Where do you think this one stands up to the few we've seen? Yeah, it's hard to say, honestly. I mean, obviously, obviously it doesn't compare to the first match. I think yeah. we can agree to that um, in terms of intensity, in terms of big moves, in terms of pacing, in terms of heat. But whether it was better than the second one, it's honestly, it's tough for me to say. In some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't. Um, crowd, like, Joe was very immediately the face. Like, Homicide had not officially turned heel at the beginning of this match, but he was treated like the heel. Crowd chanted homicide at him, which... You know, I do not miss that era of pro wrestling with that kind of stuff, um, but they did do it. Um, like, in Homicide at one point, like, like kind of, like, walks away, like, he walks away, and he's, like, John with the crowd, and he's, um, like, he's clearly playing the heel. Um, and um, I liked on commentary, Gabe's explanation for Homicide's disappearance is just, we don't know where he was. It's like, okay, <laughs> great. We, well, we've settled all that. There was, that was definitely a lot of a point to, to that whole thing. But um, as far as the match, like early on, Joe is like no selling Homicide's chops and then like slapping him. And there's a headbutt exchange and the crowd always loves that. And Joe's always good with that. Um, Joe really dominates, I would say, the first like 10 minutes or so of the match. And then uh, Homicide kind of comes back. He comes back with a, a knee off the middle rope and then he hits a pile driver. And I kind of thought that after Joe was so dominant for so long, because it was really 10 full minutes of Joe dominating, I thought Homicide's comeback was a little too nonchalant. Like, he just, like, randomly hits a move, and suddenly he's in control. But, so, like, that aspect I didn't like. But um, they both do dives, and uh, Gabe notes that it's only, those are the only, those are the only three dives of the night. The one in the, uh, in the six-man mayhem, and then the two in this match. Um, At one point, like, when they're, um, like when uh, Joe goes for the power bomb into the SDF and Homicide gets out of the SDF, so Joe slaps him so hard across the face and hits oh. a dragon screw leg whip. Like I was like, did Carino pay him to do that slap or something? Like, like that's how hard it was because it almost felt like that. But he does get the SDF. Homicide got to the ropes. Um, then um, Homicide ducked the lariat, hit a lariat of his own. Then Joe blocks a lariat, hits the choke. Homicide rolls him up for two, and they sort of do a Daniels versus Joe thing where, like, the bell rings. Yeah. And, like, that leads to the finish because Homicide is mad. Like, he thinks that he won. The The crowd's chanting bullshit. And the ref keeps, like, shoving Homicide's arm down. And he does it one time too many, so Homicide punches him in the face. And that's the end of the match. Um, I thought it was a good match. Um, the ending... You know, I'm sure it wasn't super aesthetically pleasing, but since it was so different and dramatic enough, which we'll get to in a second, um, I thought it was okay. Like, I, I didn't think it was that bad. I don't think it detracted from the match that much. But it did make the match, like, not an all-time classic. Basically, the big homicide heel turn move is, for some reason, all the lights in the arena go out. And, I don't know, in a promotion like Ring of Honor, I feel like there should be more logic and there should be an explanation for why the lights went out. But there wasn't. The lights just went out and homicide threw a fireball in Joe's face. 
And Punk even said, Homicide has crossed the line. And, but of course he gets a babyface reaction for it. 187 Chan. Even though he's been a heel the whole time, the crowd loves that he did that. Um, and that's when all hell breaks loose. But I figure uh, I'll let you talk about the match yeah. before we talk about all hell breaking loose. So this was probably my favorite match of the night. It was either this or Punk and Danielson. That I would put this also at like the three and three quarter to four star range. It is obviously not as good as the do or die match with Homicide and Joe, which I think is – if you listen back to our Final Battle 2003 show, which also has an extra segment of our awards – um, that's one of our favorite matches of that year. It doesn't feel epic like that, and it doesn't feel like the crazy super fast sprint like the uh, Empire State Showdown match does. But I think I like this match a little bit better than the Empire State Showdown match because I just like the vibe to this. Like, it, it, I feel like this match is a much more character work in it in some ways. Like, Homicide always has this vibe of, you know, wild and intimidating. But here, he, like, he kind of comes off as unhinged and, cr- and crazy, like, to another level. Like, before the match, Joe gets streamers. One of the first time, early times of Ring of Honor, he gets a ton of streamers. And Homicide starts, like, getting violently angry at the streamers. I think Joe says in his shoot interview that Homicide was, like, legitimately angry that Joe got streamers for some reason. And you can see Homicide's, like, punching the streamers in the air and just, like, kicking them. Um, Homicide grabs Joe's world title and teases, like, walking to the back with it. He, um... He wants to wrestle with his hat on, but the ref has to tell him to take it off, and he doesn't want to. Um, Early on, when Homicide gets out-wrestled, he bails to the outside and then throws a chair into the ring, which the ref just calmly removes. He Later on, he gets into it with some fans at ringside that were heckling him, and he throws a bunch of stairs in their direction. Like Homicide just does six or seven things that just show that like he's on edge and is probably going to snap. Which- and by the way, by the way, wrestling is the only place where you could say he throws a bunch of stairs at them. Yeah. yeah like just that little stairs, but yeah. And like, not literally at them, but like at, he throws it into the guardrail in there where their section would be because he's pissed off. Um, and also you have to remember the background of this match, which is the whole idea was in the do or die match, they made they worked it so it looked like Homicide might have been about to win, but then he got distracted by Loki and Julius Smokes, his two friends arguing with each other at ringside. And then the Empire State Showdown match is non-title because he lost the last one, but he wins it. But he wins it using a noose to choke Samoa Joe unconscious, and Samoa Joe's argument after that was he doesn't deserve to win, that the only way Homicide can beat me is if he uses like weapons, like if he – or as Joe would say, his thuggish ways. And so what I like about this match is it kind of proves them both right because Homicide can say, look, I think I won this match. You know, the ref with that, the ref counted three accidentally and the ref and the timekeeper rang the bell. And even though I think it's clear the way they worked it, that Joe got his arm up, Homicide can say, no, I won. But then on the other hand, Joe can say, Look at this guy. He couldn't beat me again, and so what's he do? He gets himself DQ because the only way he can beat me is if he cheats or if he goes nuts and throws fireballs or shit like that. Like that's the only way he can get the better of me. So I kind of like that it 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 um it kind of proved both guys right. As for the match, like again, it, it's kind of not the epic. It's not the sprint, but there's some really good stiff work in it. I just think these two are just great wrestlers doing what they do. Um, like Matt said, he pointed out some of the stiff parts. There's also one where um, 
at one point, Joe just chucks Homicide on the floor, and he lands with such a sickening thud that Joe makes this crazy, like, open-mouthed, like, holy shit, I can't believe I just did that to him. Like, I can't believe Homicide's body just made that sound hitting the floor. It's, it's like a great little moment. It's not their best match, but it's still a very good match, I'd say. But yeah, then, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, I probably like the Danielson match a little bit more. But, um, yeah, it's the top two or three matches of the night. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, after the match, Homicide fume, as fume, he fumes about you know the match and the loss. The lights go out, and they don't come on again until we've witnessed Homicide throwing a fireball at Joe, and then the lights come immediately back on. Uh, I, I believe Joe has said in a shoot interview that it really did singe away part of one of his eyebrows. This fireball, so apparently he got a piece of it. Uh, Homicide laughs and he attacks an assortment of refs and, and undercard wrestlers until he's taken down by the current crew. A ton of guys come for out from the back at this point, including the Briscoes. Punk and Cabana then come out and attack them. Mark recovers. And this is what Matt talked about before comes into play, where Gabe made a point to say during this ma- during the main event, oh, there's only been three dives tonight. Usually you see a lot more dives on a Ring of Honor show. And that's because they were saving all the dives for right now. Because Mark does a shooting star press to the floor on the Second City Saints. Cabana does his acai moonsault to a group of wrestlers on the floor. Donna and Marcos get to do the stage dives that they couldn't do earlier in the night. With Gabe says they're purposely attacking the carnage crew with that, but really they were attacking like 800 people on the floor. Uh, DeVito moonsaults into the crowd. And then Gabe tells us that all the post-show promos have been canceled because what of what Homicide is doing in the locker room right now. Uh, Jack Evans does a crazy dive into the crowd. Gabe then says he has to go because Homicide is heading into his area. And then he lets out a scream that I can only describe as hilarious. Um, yeah, it's, it was a thing, a thing like all this stuff about like Homicide tearing up the backstage. Like, oh, no, he's coming this way. Ah! Like, <laughs> you, you, like, they're trying to get over that like Homicide, this dramatic heel, heel turn. Homicide's going crazy. But they have to know it's at least kind of funny, right? Yeah. Um, Punk and Cabana enter the ring and... Steamboat surprises them from behind. He makes a, which is, you know, getting revenge over the last, what happened earlier in the night. He makes a classic Steamboat style comeback and he stands tall with the Briscoes as Punk and Cabana flee to the outside. Steamboat's music plays and Punk screams at Steamboat from the outside that he's a dead man. Punk gets held back by the refs at one point trying to get back in the ring. Punk and Cabana eventually head to the back and the show ends. With Steamboat pointing to the Briscoes and raising their hands to a huge pop and a huge ROH chant, one of the biggest chants of the night, and Mark leans into the camera and he tells them that they'll see Punk and Cabana in Chicago the next night. And that's how the show ends. So, Matt, I guess first I should, before I say what I thought of it, what did you think about, like, this is a very different finish than most most Ring of Honor shows. Yeah, well, I think in order to analyze this show, I think it's worth noting, like, analyzing how reborn it feels, right? Because, like, this was chalked up, like, talked up like it was a new era. People think of Remember It Now as a new era. So I want to just sort of analyze how new it felt. And I definitely feel like this is not one of the best ROA shows in the ring. Um, the last three matches were all, like, very good, I would say, um, in their different ways. But this wasn't a bonanza of great matches by any stretch, right? Would you agree with that overall? No. no. Yeah, but... I do think that they can say it's reborn in the sense of the booking style was different. Like you could tell something new was going on in the way they were booking. I remember in a Torch interview, Gabe was talking about how he felt that the second anniversary show was like a show where he really told a good story from beginning of the show to the end of the show. 
And I think this show, more than any other show he's done so far, he really tried to do that with the Punk and Steamboat thing. You know, Punk mentioned Steamboat at the beginning of the show. They have their angle about a third of the way through, another angle like toward the end, and then another angle at the very end. It was just it went through the whole show. Um, you know, it had ups and downs. I, I thought that it was um, I thought it was pretty well done, and that's why I didn't really mind in the end Steamboat's involvement in the Danielson Punk match because I thought it was a new style of booking that worked. You know, the homicide heel turn and the chaos that happened after was something new and I think pretty effective. I did think the dive train by wrestlers that had nothing to do with that stuff was kind of corny. Like, I think that was a little bit more than they needed. I think, you know, if they just had the brawl that turned into punk versus the Briscoes, I think that would have been fine. But, you know, I appreciated that it was chaos. I appreciated that it was a different kind of finish. I appreciated that it went for, they went for the screw job ending in the main event, which worked because they did it so rarely. Um... And, um, yeah, I think that it was reborn. And also, you, you can't deny this was a, an eventful as hell show. Like, a bunch of big angles between Homicide's heel turn and the, uh, and the real, like, you know... You know, I think the real getting the ball rolling on the Punk versus Steamboat feud. I think you could definitely say this was a, a big show, even if it wasn't big in terms of the matches they had. So, overall, I thought this was a successful show in kicking off the new era. Um, but it's not all the way there yet. I think they got a ways to go to really get every, get everything rolling. But I thought this was a novel and interesting and entertaining show. I I think the ending. Um, this is another one of those things where I think you'll people will have a completely different. Well, I know for a fact people have a completely different reaction if they weren't watching all or most of Ring of Honor shows up to this point. Because I saw people like I think some of the torch reviews and stuff. Like, let, let's put it this way. If you've watched like a lot of WWE and stuff, you look at this and it seems the ending of the show seems like a, the ending you've seen to Raw or Nitro or Impact a million times. It's a screw job DQ ending. It's it's um, a bunch of guys brawling to set up feuds for the next show. It it's um and it ends in the ring, you know, with people staring off from each other, you know, down the aisleway and things like that. But if you watch every Ring of Honor show, you know it's so different. Every Ring of Honor show generally ends. With backstage promos, there's almost never a screw job ever, especially in the main event. And even like the dives, they save almost all the dives for right at the end. So all these things, they're all things that are tropes in other companies. But if you're a Ring of Honor fan, they're all like actually very, very novel things. And I think all of those things, they're examples of things in wrestling that work if you don't overdo them. And so Ring of Honor, they're kind of spending all these things at once. And I wouldn't want this finished to every show, but I think it feels really cool and different as someone that has been re-watching every single show. And I also think it's it's one of Gabe's real shining moments as a booker in, in, up to this point in the run because I think you described it really well, which is it's kind of like the whole show – you can tell he wasn't booking just match to match. The whole show works together, whether like – He's making it so the Dunn and Marcos tease the dive in their match but don't get to do it because he knows he's going to pay it off at the end. Or the Steamboat stuff, he gets you to think he's going to referee the BJ Colt match, but he he teases it and they don't give it. Then he gives you that in the uh, in the Danielson match. He gives you the, gives you what you want there, but then he he gives you Punk beating him down again, and so he doesn't give you that because he's saving it for the very end. And the nice thing, I think, is... He, because he's giving you a screw job finish, he's giving you the steamboat stuff and all the dives, I think, to try and send you home happy. And you can tell by listening to that crowd, it worked. So 
I, I normally, yeah, the stives did seem like a little pointless why everyone needed to do a dive right at the end. But I do feel like that was Gabe giving himself some extra insurance to be like, if you're pissed off that I gave you a DQ in the main event, like you're going to see 800 crazy moves in two minutes and you're going to get to see like Steamboat stand tall at the end. It was like his double insurance to make sure. And I think in that sense, like it was a very smart plan Gabe had for the whole night. Yeah, the, the booking was the star of the show, which is maybe the first time you could ever say that about ROH uh, so far. Yeah, I, I think this is like the best example of like Gabe's booking really – like not that he hasn't done good things in, on all these shows. But like this is the, the, the last time I felt like this strongly coming out of a show being like, man, Gabe really like was, did, was, was really clever was the booking of uh, crowning our, a champion where I thought like every bit of that main event – like the way it played out where like Daniels loses, but technically he beat low key and all that stuff. Like it worked out perfectly in that match. And you could tell how much thought was put into that. I feel like you can really see when you watch this whole show, how much thought was meant into like making a story kind of come full circle at the end. Yeah. And, and, and we're not just saying that wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, so it really worked well and I liked it. And so that's the end of the show. And, Matt gave his thoughts on the show. I agree with basically all of Matt's thoughts, which is there's not one match on the show that I think is worth going out of your way to see. Like, I feel like the Daniel, the last two matches are just the one notch below that level. But at the same time, the company just feels fresher. And I think it is a historically relevant show. There's, there's just a, there's just a vibe to it. And again, it is a really good example of Gabe's booking at its best, I think in some ways, but we're now into the real main event because, as I mentioned before, this was one of the early shows when, in 2004, the Torch just went nuts doing a ton of Ring of Honor coverage. Wade Keller was, got obsessed. Yes, and Wade was at the show. He was backstage, and I might have to edit some of this stuff because I didn't take all of it, but he wrote a lot about this. But there are – the whole Torch team reviewed the show, but Keller in particular gave a whole long report, and Matt – there are some amazing quotes. So that is the real main event of the show. The, the, get, strap in, everybody, because, yes, I'm probably building up this this all up too big. But here we go. First off, I just want to mention from from Wade's review of the match, uh, of the main event and what happened afterwards. He, he goes, afterwards, the locker room cleared for a huge brawl with a variety of dives, including the one year and two days from Jack Evans. Matt... Wade is still trying to make that name for a move a thing. Like, for those who didn't listen to the last show, Wade tried to invent that for a weird dive. Like, he's like, Jack Evans did a whole revolution and then a little bit more. They should call that one year and two days. Even though, to my knowledge, no one ever has called it that, he, on this newsletter, just calls it that, assuming you know what he's talking about. That it's the one year and two days. That, yeah, that's a, a special level of uh, cuckoo. <laughs> Anyway, all right, Matt, stop whenever you need me to stop. Here is some of what Wade said about this show that he attended. Okay, here we go. It's a show where Steve Austin and Sandman, two icons of the Attitude Era, would actually seem out of place, if not unwelcome. Ring of Honor's top babyfaces include the burly Samoa Joe, a man of few words and really not much in the way of 90s charisma. 
Like Ring of Honor, he isn't flashy, but he's respected. The other top Ring of Honor babyface, American Dragon, Brian Danielson, makes Chris Benoit look like Mr. Flamboyant. He makes Dean Malenko and Tim Horner seem like Rico by comparison. His t-shirt, which says, I must break you, is about as loud as he gets. He redefines what a high spot is because he gets, he, because he gets high spot pops from the smallest things since his style makes everything seem real. When a match seems real, it takes less to get a pop. One suplex in the right spot in a Danielson match gets the same pop as the 10th brain-damaging chair shot Mick Foley absorbed or the career-shortening top-of-the-cage bump in a Hardys versus Edge and Christian TLC match. So we'll stop right there. Matt, what the fuck? Yeah, some of that stuff is true, I guess. Like, you can get a pop from a simple move. Like, some of that stuff is true. But first of all, seem like Rico... Like, I know it's 2004, but, like, to even have Rico come to your mind in the situation where you're trying to talk about somebody who's flamboyant or has charisma, I don't know, man. But that's one of those things where I always go back to it. We we always rail – something that I think we've done throughout the show is go Danielson. Like, he certainly got way more comfortable and charismatic as his career went on. But even in early Ring of Honor, he had more charisma than people remember because the book on Danielson was, oh, he's so boring. You know, if you if you were a hater of Danielson, he had lots of fans, but was, oh, he's so boring and he's so, you know, white bread. And, like, I think this is a good example. There were prominent people, even people like Wade who were praising him, who are saying, like, you know, he makes Dean Malenko look like Mr. Flamboyant or what, or Chris Benoit, you know, like he's talking about, he's basically acting like, like Danielson is the least charismatic wrestler of all time, which is, is crazy to me. He's never been that devoid of charisma. Right. Well, the knock, I guess, is sort of like that he works for the ROH audience, but he would never work in a national level. He would never work for WWE, which is obviously hilarious now. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a great like line to exist when knowing what happened to him. But it's yeah, like there were guys on this show who were much less charismatic than Brian Danielson, like a bunch of them. So like the idea that Danielson stood out as being uncharismatic is so weird to me, but I guess he did to Wade Keller. Well, and, and I mean that again, Wade was praising him and that's just Wade's honest opinion. He was there like had as good a view as anyone for that match. It's just, that's, it's just crazy. That's the impression. Sometimes people take away from people can watch the same thing and take away different things. And his was like, Danielson's a great wrestler, and boy, oh boy, does he have zero charisma. Yeah. But so going back to Wade, the passion of the St. Paul Ring of Honor fans, most who have uh, who had only seen Ring of Honor on videotape previously, were as into the product as any fans I've seen at any wrestling show. Their heat on a per-person basis was more intense and passionate than WWF fans during Steve Austin's peak or NWO or Sting fans during Nitro's peak. Okay, Matt, now that's, I think, even a bigger what-the-fuck than, than anything else. Like, this was a great crowd in terms of reaction. This was not the fucking Attitude Era. No, this was not somebody popping for, like, the biggest stars in wrestling history at their peak. Definitely not. This was a, yeah, it was a good crowd. But, like, ROH has had better crowds. Like, it's like, this, this, they, they had, they reacted well. They, they were not going completely insane. 
And also going to something earlier where Wade said that Ring of Honor's crowd wouldn't be super enthused or might not even welcome Steve Austin. I guarantee you if at any point in Ring of Honor's history Steve Austin decided to show up, the crowd would have lost their fucking minds. Yeah, like, I, like, I don't know what – like first of all, that he was comparing Steve Austin to the Sandman. <laughs> that's like <laughs> another – like that's also weird. Like, oh, yeah, those two. Like they're – I mean I know they wrestled each other, but like, like they're not comparable. But yeah, wrestling – the hardest core of wrestling fans always respected Steve Steve Austin. One of the biggest pops Ring of Honor had gotten in their history, easily top five, probably top three, was when Justin Credible showed up to a show. Like, you, so you think they're going to go insane over Justin Credible, but the same fans won't love Steve Austin? <laughs> like, it, I, I just, it's, it's, it's it really like, I just love it because I, I think Wade seems like a nice guy and some of his opinions I really think are good, insightful, but it's wild like some of the conclusions he's jumping to about Ring of Honor and their fans based on this show. So continuing, Wade continues to write, when the show ended, fans chanted, please come back, please come back. Ring of Honor hadn't just delivered a good wrestling show, they had delivered a near-religious experience for a new generation of fans who had found exactly what they were looking for, a new style of wrestling that they could call their own, an advancement from the hardcore ECW or WWE Attitude Era. There was a sense of order and discipline to Ring of Honor that fans love. What stood out just as much as the passion of the ROH fans is the passion of the ROH wrestlers backstage. At a lot of indie shows over the years, the locker room is segmented with various cliques of disinterested wrestlers drinking beer and quietly counting down the minutes until they get the envelope with their money in it. At Ring of Honor, the backstage area resembled a martial arts competition more than a circus sideshow. There was joking around, such as Samoa Joe loudly declaring that Colt Cabana was, quote, officially now retarded after Cabana acted as goofy backstage off-camera as he did later when he brought a toy baby to the ring on his shoulder to mock Steamboat's ring entrance with his infant son, Jesus Christ, get weighed, you need some punctuation, before his title match against Ric Flair in 1989. While there are certainly cliques and disgruntled wrestlers in Ring of Honor, as there are in any locker room, it wasn't apparent. Some wrestlers were quieter than others, but most everyone socialized. Many of the wrestlers, as usual in their match with their scheduled opponents, and as, no, wait, what is he right here? Many of the wrestlers, as usual backstage before a wrestling event, worked out various spots in their match with their scheduled opponents in slow motion. In the, in the cramped quarters that the St. Paul Armory offered, it could have frayed nerves, but that wasn't the case. This was a group of wrestlers excited to be together for the first time in a month, reuniting with their urban tribe pals with whom they share a passion for wrestling. Some are career wrestlers looking for any indie booking they can get or fitting in Ring of Honor between Japan tours. Others are just happy to be part of the Ring of Honor locker room one weekend per month. Sapolsky set the tone backstage himself with a sense of urgency one moment and relaxed appreciation and smiles the next. After matches concluded, the wrestlers sincerely and excitedly congratulated each other backstage. The genuine smiles on their faces after matches said they weren't just there to collect money and hope to someday get a big break. Rather, they were living for the moment and glad to be right where they were. Not that most of them wouldn't trade places with the WWE wrestlers a few blocks away who are earning nice pay full-time livings, working a full-time schedule. But each of these Ring of Honor wrestlers also knew that if that day comes, it will be these days in Ring of Honor that they look back on most fondly. Just like the big stadium bands who wax nostalgic about the small club gigs in their early years, one wrestler 
complained privately that Gabe sometimes gets too strict or takes himself too seriously, especially considering Gabe isn't that far removed from fetching sodas for Paul Heyman in his ECW days. But it's exactly how seriously Gabe takes this show, including the little details that makes Ring of Honor special. If he was too relaxed, too slack, too chummy, Ring of Honor would be just another wrestling indie group destined to never make an impact or last very long and certainly not make any money. Gabe got testy backstage sometimes, but never inappropriately given the circumstances. He never stopped moving, observing, or advising. I've seen promoters who didn't watch their own shows. God save you if you get in Gabe's way while he's trying to watch his own show. While Ring of Honor owner Doug Gentry was running a ringside camera and other Ring of Honor officials were sitting at ringside or behind the huge stash of tables with thousands of videotapes for sale, Gabe was the orchestra leader. The wrestlers were his instruments, and the passionate cheers of the fans were his music. So, yeah, Gabe, went, I mean, Wade went in huge on this show. Most of what he said there was fine. Like, yeah. it was, you know, kind of like intensely stated. It's, it's still weird to hear that very brief, like, trivia note period where they're like, Ring of Honor owner, Doug Gentry. But yeah. um, besides that, like, I, you know, the, some of the stuff he said is weird, like I said, but, you know. Their urban tribe, Matt. The, the urban tribe was like he was happy to get back together and catch up on the month away. Yes, but I have to say, like, the first time you go to a live ROH show, like, back then, like, it was a pretty special experience. Like, I would never say it was a religious experience, except maybe Joe versus Kobashi. Um, but, like, the, like, it, it is different. Like, you do feel like you're part of something special. So I could see him going gaga. The one thing, though, that I always look back on when I see how obsessed Wade was here was just, like, he dropped talking about ROH, like, completely within a year. And it's like, how much could he have really liked it? Well, I always throw back to, there is, I'll, I have to, I'll have to see when we get to it. There is one torch where he just prints one full page of people yelling at him going, you're covering Ring of Honor too much. We don't care. But, the, but then the he goes, but then he goes to not covering it at all ever. Like that's like, that's kind of crazy. If he liked it that much, you'd think he would still like pop in a little every now and then. Right. So one other quote I have is from someone else, which it's Bruce Mitchell now. Bruce Mitchell, not nearly as into Ring of Honor, didn't talk about it as much, didn't write about it as much, but he did watch some shows. And usually he'd watch them when he got roped into sometimes the torch at this time would do round tables of Ring of Honor shows where when a DVD would come out, uh, Wade and Sean Radikin and Bruce Mitchell, maybe someone else, they'd all review it and give little blurb reviews and give a score of one to ten. Uh, most of the people for this one, I think, give it like sevens to eights. Bruce gave this show a five, and uh, Bruce wrote, I thought this was just a solid, consistent, but nothing special outing from Ring of Honor until the lights went out and Homicide threw the big fireball at Champ Samoa Joe. Ring of Honor fans are certainly smart enough to know that it was a magic trick, not a tragedy. It's like throwing salt on the twin or the twin switch. It's just too cheesy for the Ring of Honor environment. Ring of Honor should have waited years more before they ended a show with a big no-contest brawl. I was watching the six-man flip-a-thon and thinking about the big move no-sell formula and how it has just about worn out its welcome when Jack Evans hit that double-twist-flip somersault and almost landed feet first perfectly bounced on the ring barrier. Yikes. Samoa Joe's match with Homicide was another solid effort from the two until the dumb ending. Chris Lovey tried his best in the, Jim Ross, uh, in the Jim Ross style to turn Brian Danielson versus CM Punk into a classic, but Punk just isn't at that level in the ring yet. Colt Cabana came off like a second-rate Glenn Gilberti on this show, which you would think was impossible. 
I usually enjoy CM Punk's act, but there was just too much of him on the show. He was the hit or miss color commentator. He was in the big show long storyline with Ricky Steamboat, and he was the top heel on the show. He's not good enough to carry a three-hour wrestling show. The TNA, TNA pullback has hurt the depth in this company unless or until Ring of Honor can find or develop new talent to take its place. So uh, Bruce pretty down on the show, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing that he calls Colt Cabana a second-rate disco inferno. Yeah, I mean, this is probably as wrong as uh, as Bruce has ever been in anything that I've heard from, like, the past, like, where his cynicism just, like, gets the better of him. Yeah, like, the timing especially is great considering that this is the week that Colt Cabana ended the art of wrestling podcast. And you just have a, a, like a laundry list of wrestlers coming out saying how influential and important Colt Cabana was to them. And we've been watching Colt Cabana was, was great. He was great then. Yeah. I mean, he, he hadn't done everything that he would be loved for by this point in his career. But again, I think it goes like the same thing with Wade and Brian Danielson. It's wild how you, somebody can see a wrestler for one match and make these really big, assumptions like i don't think bruce would say that about colt cabana now but based on this show he's like oh this guy is like a second-rate disco inferno comedy wrestler which but we but like a lot of people watched plenty of colt cabana back then and i can't imagine too many people had that opinion of him yeah exactly so yeah that is the show and uh we've already kind of given our uh our, our final thoughts but Really exciting to start this era, and ne- our next show is going to be Ring of Honor Stage 2. So that's going to have the Briscoes versus Colt and uh, Punk for the tag titles in a match I remember really liking. It's been a long time since I've seen it. You're going to have Danielson wrestling Homicide for almost half an hour. I mean, just that, That's a pretty legendary match right there. Yeah, this is, I'm really looking forward to that show. It's, it's their very first show ever in Chicago, so another really notable, exciting show. If you want to get in contact with us, uh, through the years at gmail.com is the email. T H R O H is how you spell through. At Trevor Dame on Twitter. At Mayor MGF on Twitter. The Pro Wrestling Only message board. The Figure Four message board. Voices of Wrestling message board. We have plug threads for the podcast. And also, um, the notes that I did for, for the last episode, we decided to put up. Uh, Pro Wrestling only doesn't have a full-blown webpage, just a message board at this point. So we asked for pe- I asked for people to host it. We got a couple offers. The first offer was the An Honorable Mention podcast, which is another – you've heard us talk about them before – another quality Ring of Honor podcast. They were nice enough to put that on their Patreon page for free. So if you just go, it's going to be one of their most recent posts on their Patreon page. If you really want to see all the notes that I wrote for that show, it's up there, but – other than that, we'll be back next time. Matt, do you have anything else to say? No, I'm just waiting for that sweet, sweet Trevor Dame sign-off. Okay, well, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. <laughs>